0: make do suburban fireman podcast where we talk all things suburban fire service with your hosts nick peppard and sean duffy this podcast is sponsored by national rescue consultants build your culture north florida fire and ems training llc and the north florida fire expo so grab a drink pull up a chair and let's go welcome back everybody episode 22 make do suburban fireman podcast i'm your host nick peppard with me tonight is uh my brother in arms uh Coming from the state of Georgia, slash works in South Carolina, so he's a man of uh, of multiple borders. Uh, but uh, <laughs> founder of the the fire inside, uh, and recent founder uh, of the training group that we're doing, the Rust Bell Jakes, Mark alone. Welcome to the show, man.
1: Hey, man, thank you. I, I think a, a man of many borders that might be a new one for me. I've been called a lot of things, but I guess that makes me cultured, right? <laughs>
0: B- bougie 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 right yeah <laughs> so well dude it's been uh it's been entirely uh you know too long think, since we've been on any kind of podcast thing together i'm trying to think the last time was on your show uh about a year yeah, ago man. i guess huh yeah yeah
1: north florida right i think probably yeah. was
0: the last time so yeah it's been a, it's been a minute so uh kind of kind of cool flipping the roles here and having you on the show on this end and Definitely excited about what we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, I think most of the listeners will get a lot out of it just because I think that uh, as we've had many conversations in the past, a lot of guys find themselves in that suburban setting where, you know, rural suburban setting where uh, sometimes resources are not as as heavy as we would like them to be. And, you know, a lot of the things that uh, we talk about are, are coming from personal experience, you know, coming from a place of, you know, growing up in the, the you know, rural and suburban fire setting and even in the smaller urban setting you know where we share a lot of the same characteristics as you know we may work for a city but we're really in a suburban city you know and uh so i think that that's uh you know one of the things i'm always excited to talk about because that's really uh uh really something i think that is important because 80 percent of the fire service is in that category 80 percent of the fire service finds themselves in a uh, less than ideal staffing situation less than ideal coverage situation and so Uh, thus the make do uh, suburban fireman podcast so that's where it started that's where uh, I'm excited to get kind of back to our roots with that whole conversation tonight and uh, so with that let's uh, jump right in here man Um, just real quick uh, as a way of introductions obviously a lot of folks know you but some may not so let's just take a couple minutes and talk about your background where you came from and uh, where you're at now.
1: Yeah, sure. know, yeah. I think I would go with with some folks know me, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a big deal, I guess. But no, Mark alone. Uh, I've been had the privilege of being in the fire service since 2001. I got my start uh, in my hometown in upstate New York as a volunteer, like so many have. And if you really want to talk about suburban firemanship, that's where most of it starts uh, on the volunteer side in these uh, towns and villages all over the country. Uh, so I did that for a few years and. Then I found out my love for firefighting exceeded my love for school at the time and realized that my parents were not going to side with that. So I enlisted in the U.S. Air Force, uh, did a four year enlistment uh, where I was a signals intelligence analyst, which is about as boring as it sounds saying it. Uh, But the cool thing about it is that it's the only school that shares a base with fire school. So not only did I get to do something I didn't want to do, but I get to watch firemen train throughout my whole school. So uh, but yeah. So uh, all things work out in the end, right? So I did my enlistment. Uh, I got to live in Germany for two years. Uh, Ended up down here in Georgia. Uh, I volunteered uh, while I was still in the Air Force and ended up uh, going career with that department uh, in the county that I live in Columbia County. Uh, 12 years career there starting in 2007. Uh, Currently I work for West Columbia. Uh, It's a city in South Carolina. And I am a captain there, been there since 2019. And in that time period, uh, somewhere between <laughs> then and now, I uh, got the bug for fire conferences and all things fire, and kind of got my passion lit on fire, if you will. Uh, led to some speaking engagements, uh, some writing, and so I started the uh, blog slash page slash website, whatever you want to call it, uh, the Fire Inside, where I try to just put some real honest blunt feelings out about this job and what we do and how we do it. And apparently it resonated with people. And so what started as kind of more of a therapeutic event has uh, turned into quite a little following there. I think I've got 23, 24, 25,000 people that at some point thought what I had to, to say was worth reading. And, and so that turns into stickers and t-shirts and, Cups in in a following and, and and along with it, I've been extremely blessed to travel around the country and meet other people that are just as fired up, if not more fired up than I am. And I've had opportunities to meet great people like Nick and and probably take more classes than I've taught, which is which is beneficial for me and and do cool things like get on here and, and talk and uh, hopefully share some things that that help other people and. If nothing else, spur some conversations in, in other fire departments where people can can help themselves, which I think is the ultimate goal. Right.
0: Yeah, man, that's you know, it's <laughs> I had to been a long four years in the Air Force watching people do what you want to do, <laughs> doing a job you don't really necessarily want to do. Just well, the, buy, the, you, it was only school. For, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Six months of school. Oh, okay. um, but, you know, <laughs> As cool as Germany is to go to, that the only thing that sucked was I couldn't volunteer there because I didn't speak the language. I guess I could have. I don't want to go to Firewood. I don't <laughs> speak your language. Uh, but but I was fortunate when I when I came back stateside that I lived somewhere that still had volunteering around, so I was able to kind of get the itch back and and knew this is what I wanted to do. And although i it's times like these that I I kick my own ass because. Uh, I'd be about nine months away from retirement in the Air Force if I had stayed. <laughs> I'm not even close to the fireside, so
0: I feel your pain, <laughs> I really do. I know I told, told my wife the other day is like, you know, if I would have, uh, if I would have stayed in, uh, in originally where I started in Florida, I'd be well about eight years away from retirement. So
1: <laughs> it all happens for a reason, but, man. So. But yep, it
0: does, it does. And honestly, man, I I think uh, we're better for it. So. I think that's life has a way of kind of redirecting you sometimes. And, you know, you get opportunities and doors to walk through and sometimes you just got to swing the bat, you know, and take those opportunities. So that being said, um, yeah, man, the, uh, the fire inside stuff, obviously, um, I think that's kind of where I first kind of learned of you uh, is, is through the yeah. fire inside stuff. And then of course we met a couple times at some different conferences and whatnot and taking some classes and, you know, been together in a few different training scenarios and, uh, and recently have had the, the pleasure of kind of training together, working together on some hands-on stuff. So, uh, definitely, definitely, uh, blessed to call you my friend, man. You're, you're a, uh, a solid dude that loves the job and, and, uh, seems to have a pretty good, uh, you know, realistic look at how, how the job is and life and in general. So I, I definitely respect that and appreciate that, man. It's kind of keep it real. And I think that's why a lot of people gravitate towards that is just, you know, it's not fluff. It's not bullshit. It's just you know, keeping it real as, as you see it, you know, and that's, uh, there's a lot to be said for that. So as you see <laughs> it, uh, we're going to come out guns blazing here, man. Oh, uh, we're going to start, we're going to start talking about suburban engine operations. So you're, you're an engine, man. Um, uh, I'm an engine
1: guy through and through. I'm,
0: I'm the Rudy of, of truck companies, right? That movie, <laughs> right.
1: I wish somebody would put a, put your heart in a truckies body. I just, uh, I'm a little guy, man. It is what it is.
0: Hey, be careful. Stickers may come out of nowhere. Hey, that's that
1: it's, it's been known to happen. <laughs> but yeah, but, uh no nah, man, I, I love the engine. Um, you know, all jokes aside, I, I got no beef with the truck company, uh, maybe with the squad company sometimes, right? Cancel the squad is probably gonna be the one of the most hilarious things I've ever followed on Instagram. But uh, but no, man, like I, I think I gravitate to the engine because the engine goes. You know, there's no fire department without an engine. There's lots of fire departments that don't have support companies. Uh, water puts out fires, not axes and vent holes as much as they do assist. you know uh, I think it gets kind of forgotten that everything else, it's called a support company because it supports the engine. And I like being busy. I like being in the street. I think you learn more by running calls, whether they're BS calls or you know 100% real calls. Uh, there's something to be gained out of every run, whether it's about your crew, your district, your citizens, uh, you name it, you're, you're learning something, whether you turn out and get canceled or you turn out and you're there for 12 hours. Um, and so I've just kind of always been an engine company person. And so when I started diving more into the career field and going to conferences and classes and learn that we teach engine work <laughs> so wrong in so many cases and how much intricacy there is in actually being a good engine firefighter, engine officer, Uh you can really go down a lot of rabbit holes with it, and it's it's more than just oh, you know, you squirt, you know, the the wet stuff on the red stuff. It's so downplayed, and that's kind of where I aimed my influence was, you know, fire service as a whole, but really bringing back that lost art of engine company operations that just gets forgotten about these days.
0: Yeah, you're right, man. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, uh, show me a fire department that exists without an engine, you won't have a fire department, right? At the end of the day, I know one. <laughs> There is yep. a
1: department in Maryland. Um, yep. Or I know, is it? I think it's in Maryland. It might be, a, yeah, pretty sure it's in Maryland. But anyway, uh, they're the no hose nation. They run a truck and they run a rescue. But really, they are bordered so closely by all engine companies oh, that really? he gets away with it. But yeah, no, I'm i Okay. The okay. So for full yeah. disclosure, okay,
0: very fair enough. Yeah, I, I learned something <laughs> new. So I go. stand corrected. But as as a rule of thumb, I mean, at yeah. most departments, even if you're smallest single station. You know, volunteer companies have some sort of pumping apparatus. And, yep. you know, and, and like you said, I, I hate when guys try to dumb down what we do. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm all about keeping it simple. But I also don't like when people dumb it down like any monkey. Oh, I just put water on the red stuff. Well, there's a lot of things that go into putting water on the red stuff. And, I, and that's what I love. You know, guys that are passionate about the engine, passionate about hose work, passionate about, le- you know, learning fire behavior, learning building construction and understanding the arena you're playing in because that's a lot of what we do as engine companies, right? Is, is going in to these buildings and, and understanding building layouts and flow paths and fire behavior. Uh, your greatest, you know, the greatest engine companies you can run into the guys, the engine guys that you run into are students of the craft, right? They're students of all these things that go into the fire attack and tactics and strategies and all these things. And that's, that's what I get excited about. I get excited about good fundamental engine work. Obviously we don't, you know, you, you don't want to overcomplicate it. You know, you got to keep it, Reasonable. I mean, we're not. Most of us don't have PhDs. We're, we are firemen, but I do think that uh, we should want to know as much as we can about the work that we do and in the you know the environment that we work in. And obviously, the more you know about the environment that you work in, the more you know about your equipment, the more you know about tactics and strategies and fire behavior and things like that. The more effective you're going to be. And and it's not just going to be you know we're not we're not our goal shouldn't be to save foundations, right? Our goal should actually to be to save lives and property. And we do that best on the engine by putting fire out quickly. Um, I
1: mean, the engine's infantry, right? And that's that's the best analogy. I mean, you, you can win a war without the infantry being successful, but it's a hell of a lot easier to win when the infantry goes in and, and just takes out the enemy uh, firsthand. And, you know, engine company work is kind of forgiving, I guess, in a way, in that uh, a lot of the time the public or even, you know, other companies won't know you screwed up because we just assumed the fire was, you know, too well involved or – you know situations where we we didn't know it extended here, or it was hoarder conditions, whatever it might be. There's there's a list of excuses you can make, but when the engine company's on, when you get that opportunity lines up right, you can stop it in the room of origin or hold it to you know one or two rooms. You're you're cleaning up before the the fourth new company arrives. That's when that good engine company work really shines. And and honestly, you know I don't know just cause I like engine work. I don't know if I'm any good at it, but uh, you know, I like to think that I've had a few good results here and there and I've had a lot of bad results and lessons learned and fires I wish I could have back like anybody else. But anybody who thinks that the engine is as simple as, Oh, you pull the hose and you squirt it. Well, again, show me your results. What, what does it look like? Cause I know a lot of guys way better than me at this job that that are posting and sharing classes and stories about doing just that, putting a stop on the fire and and that's, for for the truck company that's trying to, you know, pull the pin to cancel engine with their can, well, guess what? It works the other way too. If I yeah. can if I can cancel the truck because I got in there and I don't need any of that support work, that's a victory for the engine.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, and and thing is, I mean, I think it's fair to say there's plenty of videos on YouTube and on the interwebs of poor <laughs> engine work. And yep. uh, you know, not not a knock on anybody, and I'm not trying to throw stones, but I think that at the end of the day, like I said, you know in a day of technology where people were recording and and people were questioning the fire departments and police department and all this stuff. Like, I think it's that, that much more important nowadays to really put in solid work and and make sure that we get our stretches, right. That make sure that, you know, we get quickly masked up, get through, you know, the front door, wherever, side door, wherever we're going in, uh, having the correct attack line, getting to the seat of the fire quickly, putting the fire out. There's nothing better than watching a video of a well oiled engine company going in, you know, force the front door, mask up quick, get in there, and 30 seconds later, you see dark, black, turbulent smoke turning white and cooling, and and the fire's going away. And to me, like that's that to this day, 17 years going on, 18 years in on this stuff, and I can tell you, there's nothing better to me than just that that scenario right there. First, doing an engine, you're on, you know, on the first line through the door, first crew on scene, you know, going through, putting the fire out. And and literally watching everything get better around you, you know that's that to me is, is is where it's at. That's I'm like a little kid when I'm you know when you get those opportunities and they're not very you know let's be honest I mean you don't get those first do on the nozzle or the first hose line opportunities every single day. A lot of fires we make you know your second third fourth do your mate you, you may only get a handful of first do fires a year. Um, mm-hmm. And so to me, I, every time I get those opportunities, I savor those opportunities because that takes me back to my very first year on the job as a probie where I was so excited when I made my first fire. And you, I don't know, man, I just, I, I get excited about it. I get excited about going to fires. I get excited about going through the front door of the line and, and watching it's like art, man. It's like you know, watching the fire get erased by our hose line, watching the results get better, you know, watching conditions improve, feeling conditions improve, knowing that what we did made a difference. Right. And and we kept it, you know, to the room of origin or a couple rooms, whatever. And, and like I said, you know, a good stubborn fire where you got to really make the push and you got a fire blowing down a hallway and there's nothing better. There's nothing better. I don't <laughs> care what any truckie says. There's nothing better than making that push, making a difficult push knowing that, you know, your crew is the difference between, you know, a couple rooms being on fire and maybe a hallway and the whole house. Yep, so right. I don't know. That's, that's the engineer to me. I love it. I know you love it. Um, so on that, we're going to talk some tactics here, a little, you know, just a few things that, I want to get your perspective on obviously, uh, we've had several conversations in person and, and, you know, through various means in the past. But uh, I think this is one of those ones we're going to jump on uh, water supply first, because I know that we both come from very different water philosophies, water supply yeah. philosophies, or backgrounds, or, or current, you know, circumstances. And I'm not saying any one situation is, you know, the end all be all, because I think they all have their place. But I think if there's anybody that can talk about water supply, you and I can have this conversation pretty candidly oh, yeah. because I know that we've, you know, we've both worked, in, worked for departments or work for departments where the water supply mindset is a little different. You know, I came up in the fire service initially uh, early in my career where, you know, the second do engine always laid a line. That was like the the, the rule. Second do laid a line. Um, I went to a place where the third do or fourth do laid a line because we just started doing booster backup. It was kind of like the the go-to for most of our residential structure fires where we just married the first two companies and, you know, booster backup and and went straight in and started doing our stuff and let the third do company worry about water supply where I'm at now uh, kind of shifting back more towards the second do catching a plug, although it's not, you know, completely out of the question to have a first do catch a plug. So, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where, you know, being in that scenario and then some of my part time gigs when I was in Florida working in a rural scenario where uh, rural water supply was an issue, where, you know, drafting and relay pumping, water shuttles, things like that became a factor. So I feel like I've got a very diverse, you know, background in water supply. I think you do too, coming from yeah. the volunteer side of things and then working in uh, North Georgia, then of course where you're at in South Carolina now. So that being said, um, I want to get your thoughts on water supply and, and, you know, like I said, this is not a, uh, you know, an umbrella. I don't think by any <laughs> stretch of imagination, but but I want your personal opinion and, and experiences on it because I think it, it'll help a lot of people listening because I think a lot of people go in this argument of like, does the first do lay, does the second do, does the third do. And I think it goes back to being situational, but with your experience and, and kind of where you've been and where you're at, uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, who's catching the, you know, the hydrant, uh, you know, and, and foregoing the hydrant, maybe for, for water supply off the booster tank. Um, kind of where did, where does your pendulum rest if <laughs> you will, when it comes
1: to water supply? Uh, well, I feel like we should start out with the disclaimer that my water supply plan is whatever my policy states it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll BS aside, man. Um, honestly, I mean, I, I think it's situational to a, to a point, but, water supply is like a lot of other things where there's so many factors that go into it with staffing, with distance, with tank size, with, you know, even down to your water system, is your water system good or not? If you're, are you tanking? Are you drafting? Are you doing a little both? You know, I I don't know. Um, So without taking that middle of the road, you know, Oh, it depends BS answer to my heart goes to say this, is that if you're riding the seat, I would hope that you have some kind of clue based on notes, based on experience, you know, call notes, your experiences of where you're going, knowledge of your district and any kind of signs of fire, you know, during your travel that would clue you into the fact that this is going to be a little deal or a big deal. Now, I'm not saying that's right 100 percent of the time, but I haven't been to a lot of fires that really truly required the water supply i'm not saying we didn't use it in mop up or something i am talking about the fire attack to bring the fire under control they didn't have some type of column of smoke showing or some kind of scent, or some kind of you know the dispatcher says it's the house across the street or it's a known house that you go to the, those kind of clues and so to me you know if let's just make this easy and say you have fire hydrants in a reasonable distance distance in your district. Okay. I'm not getting into tanking. That's a whole different scenario. Uh, But if we're talking about, you know, static water supplies, pressurized water sources, then yeah, I I think first do you should have an option to say, Hey, like a, the hydrant is within a reasonable distance for me to lay. I don't have to go out of my way to do it. You know, going down a different block is one thing going down five blocks and over three to come back is a different, because not everybody has NFPA spacing in their district. Uh, but, but absent of that, the hydrant's on the way in. It's a reasonable distance, and you have pretty much a clue that this thing's going to be rocking and rolling when you get there. I'm all about laying the line. Now, leaving somebody connected, no, I'm not down with that. I think it wastes too much time. And something that I found works really good for us is that our engineer gets out, wraps the hydrant, and goes, because he doesn't have all his gear on, if he has any gear on at all do not have to dismount with SCBA, SCBA on, and guess what? He can't leave when he until he's ready because he's driving the rig. And, and honestly, we've seen it. I mean, my past two operators, you know, my current operator, one before that, do that. If they're going over twenty seconds to jump off, wrap the hydrant, and get back on, throw the bag, throw the humat, and go, like that's that's a long time if it's over twenty seconds. So it's really rapid, and it gets the hose on the ground. So if you get up there. And it's not a big deal, so what? You got to rack some hose. You know, maybe you never fill the water. I don't know. Um, but, but to me, that's that's where it starts. Um, I'm also the opinion that absent all of those things, the call notes say, oh, the the, the electrical outlet sparking, or there's an odor, or or something. There's no major column of smoke. There's no none of these clues that clue us in that like, hey, this is probably going to be a working fire. If there none of those clues are there, and we find a working fire, with the exception of you know some of these. McMansions and, you know, commercials kind of a whole different beast sometimes, but more times than not our tank water <laughs> or a couple tanks is probably going to put it out. Um, and, and I'm big on the NIST studies. I like the science side. I'm kind of a geek in the, you know, the last studies, they just figured out, you know, most fires are being put out, you know, in a residential setting, mind you, you know, I'm talking residential. Uh, most single family fires are being put out and overhaul with less than a tank of water. So um, I feel like a good tactic is, is kind of in the middle, you know, raise company officers to make good choices. You can't go around putting hose on the ground. But at the same time, I think it's just as bad to unnecessarily drop 3000 feet of hose for smells and bells. And, and I know that's not popular. I know there's people all over Facebook talking about, Hey, go through the motions, put hose on the ground. Like I get it. But when you have suburban staffing of two people and it's going to take me 45 minutes to pick that hose up, is that responsible? When, when I all signs pointed to, you know, tank tank water or less i i just can't get there and that's that's just my opinion um and i I know you'll never go wrong putting hose on the ground but so in, in that order i would say if you have the means and and you your your spidey senses are telling you we're going to work for sure put the line on the ground communicate where it is make sure somebody is stopping to get it that's where we fail that's where i have failed that's why i say we me is say hey uh you know oh engine one's on scene we're laying in from you know main and north street i assume somebody else is going to get it well you know what nobody on second third or fourth do is thinking they didn't tell me to go there i'm gonna fight fire he's going to work (laughs) so you you really gotta assign somebody to go finish that connection otherwise put a hose on the ground for nothing um and if not hey have the second do hey you know we're going for investigation second do this is your hydrant laying from here give us your tank water on arrival you know, I, I think those are the two best scenarios for most suburban departments in, in most settings.
0: Yeah, no, I can I can get behind that. Um, I can tell you that the vast majority of residential fires that I've been to in my career, a um, couple tanks of water is plenty. Now, again, I think that goes back to I've always been fortunate to have 750 gallon tanks or larger mm-hmm. um, on, on the apparatus arriving on scene. So, I mean, I does that play into it? Sure. If you got 500 gallon tanks, I think, you know, maybe things are a little different there. Um, but even still, I like that you brought up this study, uh, because it does show, or the the recent UL study rather, uh, shows, um, you know, that most of our residential fires are going out with 500, less than 500 gallons of water. And, and, and I can't remember, don't quote me on the exact number. It was like 300 and some odd gallons. Yeah. Uh, but, but,
1: but, and, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. But, but less than 500. And I think that's, really just validating what uh, a lot of people are experiencing on the residential side where, hey, you know, you have a house fire. If you take the first two companies and you do some sort of some version of booster backup, right? uh, Chance are you're going to get it or you're at least going to put a pretty good hit on it and be able to, to, you know, and I think where the booster backup, at least in my world, came from, we were at the time running two-man engine companies, you know? And so for us to be able to mount a fire attack and do some form of search and ventilation, Uh, We needed to be able to marry companies rather quickly um, to go to work on scene and and dropping people, you know, when you don't have anybody in the backseat to to drop at a hydrant, that's that's completely out of the equation then. Um, So it was kind of one of those things where it's like out of necessity, we started doing a lot of booster backup and we had a lot of really great results. Now, that being said, you also hit on, you know, training the company officers to make good decisions, right. And having the leeway based on the fire conditions that they encounter to dictate what needs to be done. You know, if I'm coming down the road, and i can see a, a six thousand square foot house that's two-thirds involved and i've got a hydrant a couple hundred feet you know off the road on the way in you know maybe hey guys let's uh this we're probably not get not going to get this with the tank let's uh you know let's lay a line or at least lay it dry like you said have the second dude, you know catch the plug and then you know drop a guy and come give their tank water while they're waiting for the hydrant to you know water to make it to the to the, the pumper um I think it really just comes down to education, right? Guys need to know what they can and can't get with a tank of water. And and that's where training comes in. That's where training and education comes in and experience and all those things play into it. But I can tell you that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, just play it safe and, and lay in every single time or, or always put the hose on the ground. Um, I tend to feel the same way. Like if you're in a limited staffing situation to begin with, um, especially if you're in a system that does a fair amount of runs, I mean, you're sitting there, you know, putting – couple thousand feet of hose on the ground for smells and bells then uh you know when you catch another run that's actually legit you have a real fire and now your first couple companies are picking up hose they're delayed to the fire because we're still picking up thousands of feet of hose that they dropped so yeah. I, you know there's it's, it's a trade-off i mean don't get me wrong i mean if i got a hydrant you know 100 feet away from the pumper is it a big deal for us to hand stretch 100 feet of hose and just put yeah. it on the ground no but if we're talking you know hydrant distances of 800 900 thousand feet that's that's a different animal and i think that's where like everybody wants this like cookie cutter like catch all like we always do this we always do that uh but i just i i don't think you can always say always <laughs> no you can't. you can't and it's you know <laughs>
1: that, that's kind of my only beef with the with booster backup man and, and i'm all bad at whether you call it booster backup you call it marrying whatever you want to call it it's that in itself to me is not a water supply plant that's a water supply tactic it you don't write off the water source because your tactic is to tie the the tanks together that's to buy you right. time to Correct. establish a water supply and it's like anything else man it's like hose advancement or you know ladder throws people see a tactic and turn it into a strategy and they don't understand the overall strategy that that tactic lives in um you know, I'm with you, bro. Train your people. Uh, a great drill to do uh that, that somebody taught me early in my career for for hand stretching was just go out and, and measure out from, you know, spot somewhere from the hydrant where you know you're 100 feet away, 200 feet away, 300 feet away. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you, you know, spoiler alert, you're going to be hard pressed to have one person unless they're a, a just beast of a human that can hand stretch more than 300 feet of five inch by themselves. So that's kind of the cutoff for me with the operator really 200 because if you're so smoked <laughs> that you can't operate the pump panel, um, and the same with laying into me, I, I, I get it. I have got a bed full of hose and it does nobody any good in the bed if I need it. Uh, but unless I'm doing some kind of a split lay, if I'm getting into a situation to where that, that length is is outside my bed, what I have with me, I think now you're into some kind of rural water supply. You're into some kind of tank revolution. Uh, I, I, I'm, don't get me wrong. I know we can lay out as much hose as we want as long as we got engines in there relaying. But when I talk about you know the first or the second do, and you talk about you know time versus benefit, how long how, how long are we delaying water? What is happening to that fire because we're laying out you know the first part of twenty five hundred. Foot of hose that's not even going to be complete when we're done. I don't know. I I can't wrap my mind around it. I just don't get there. Um, I, I will say one side of this: the the more experience I get, the more responsibility I get in the fire service. That that kind of gets left out of this conversation is that if you want to have this talk, i.e., don't be what I was when I tried to have this talk with people who disagree with me. But there there is an administrative component to it. There is somebody above you that answers to the people above them that answer to the citizens. So if you want to have these choices, you have to make good choices because somebody else has to speak to them. So how can you sell it to the city manager that, hey, we burn a house down because this fool (laughs) didn't lay his hose. That was 600 feet away because he thought he could get it with tank water. And, oh, everybody else bypassed, too, because there was no plan. And I I know we always kind of have this whole, you know, button heads with the, oh, you know, the the people that make the rules and the people have to follow them. But. Uh, man, we got to come together on this stuff at this point. If you can't sit down and have an educated conversation about it that considers that side, you're going to lose every time. So I say that to your point of everybody wants, you know, this cookie cutter way. That's what it ends up being. Because if you can't be willing to have some kind of a meet in the middle stance or, you know, you give me a little, I'll give you a little, there is no compromise. And that's how you end up with the, you do it this way every time, because you haven't shown that you have the intelligence to make that choice, you know, when it needs to be made.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a hundred percent. You know, I think at the end of the day, um, I really truly believe this that you gotta you gotta train people. Obviously, we've talked about that, but I, th- I think too, it comes down to is what mode of operation do you anticipate? Yeah. Like, you know, if you're arriving, and and I'll, I will say this in a residential setting, um, i.e., apartments, townhouses, you know, uh, where we can get. Fairly quick water, right? My, I'm always a big fan of fast water. To me, like fast water is where we win. If we can get water and see the fire thing stop, you know, getting bigger and bigger, the fire's, you know, put in check. Um, it's going to make conditions better, you know, obviously for us, it's going to make conditions better for any victims we may have. And I, you know, I tend to think of the mindset of if I'm going into an offensive fire, personally, I'm a big fan of the, of the first due foregoing water supply. If I anticipate this being an offensive fire um not saying water supply is not important but that's where i may default to either a second do you know you know lay in dry give me your tank water or just come straight in give me your tank water it's a, a single room fire whatever once we've done a size up 360. um those type of scenarios are are ones where i feel like i kind of default to if it's offensive then i'm gonna go you know straight in as a first do company that's kind of my default mindset now who catches water supply after that really comes down to a lot of factors. You know, obviously the size of the building, you know, uh, is it an apartment complex? Do we have multiple apartments? When That's a different animal, right, than a single Absolutely. bedroom in, in a single isolated apartment. Um, that's a different animal. Uh, is it going to take time for reflex time for us to get hose lines to maybe the fourth floor of an apartment or a hotel or something like that? That's a, that's a different scenario than a, you know. A one or two story single family dwelling. So those start kind of you know going through my mind as I'm arriving on scene. I'm thinking, okay, a still offensive mindset. I'm going to probably go for you know in with my first due company, uh, but then I, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, do I want the second dude to catch a hydrant? Do I want them to come straight in for water? Spec? Again, factoring in tank size, crew you know needs and things like that. And the other thing you got to take into consideration is, do we anticipate highly anticipate victims here? Meaning, you know, we go to a a, a single family dwelling at two in the morning, there's cars in the driveway. I may want to front load my manpower to start search efforts a little quicker. Right. And again, we're not, we're not putting off, you know, we're, we're delaying water supply a little bit, but we're marrying the, the first two companies. We're getting both tanks of water. We can at least affect a search and maybe hopefully put it a check on the fire. Again, those things start playing into my mind, you know, and I'm sure you'll you've had similar thoughts go through your mind as far as, Hey, if I have a, a likely rescue or a confirmed entrapment situation, does that change the way I think about my water supply? I think it does. I think that you know I'm going to take a little bit more risk if I know that I mm-hmm. have confirmed entrapment, or I have a strong suspicion that we do have entrapment. Uh, versus, you know, it's it's one in the afternoon. There's no cars in the driveway, and there's nobody. You know, everybody's saying everybody's out. Like, I'm not saying we're not going to search. I'm not saying we're not going to do our job. But in that scenario, I I just tend to be a little bit more. Okay, hey, you know what? no big deal you know it's it is it's it's still a fire that we're going to attack it's still a fire we're going to search we're still going to do our jobs but let's be honest when we have a likelihood of a strong likelihood that there's somebody in that building or we have confirmation somebody's in that building it does take it up a level and and you know it's that whole pendulum and, and nobody wants to talk about risk management don't get me wrong I'm not a big oh risk guy <laughs> but but you know, we talk about this stuff. I mean, and we escalate, and, and we do naturally. Even the guys that that talk you know shit about risk management, oh, right. are, we're going to escalate based on our conditions, right? If if I got three kids, hey, there's three kids in that room up there. You know, even as an engine company, now I'm thinking like, hey, do we split our crew? Do we do we send somebody to ves that that room while we hold the fire in check? You know, there's a whole nother you know list of things that go through my mind when we pull up and they're saying, hey, there's people in that building, right? So that's. Let's just be honest. I mean, when we have that scenario, our heart rates go up a little bit. We, mm-hmm. Our intensity goes up a little bit. And I think that that shifts our, our focus a little bit. I'm not saying that water supply is not important because it absolutely is. But if I can get quick water with a couple of tanks of water, and I'm not saying we're going to put this fire out all the way. It may be a well advanced fire. But can I affect rescues? Can I put enough water in the right place quickly to take some of the energy out of this fire, hold the fire in check and allow us to search? Even if it's just a one or two rooms that we can search. Right. We may have a well-developed fire, and there may be only one or two rooms that we could viably search, right, that's not engulfed in fire. But we want to search those rooms, right? We want to clear those rooms. So, hey, am I going to put this fire out with a tank of water? Probably not. But can I take a hose line of two and a half and, and put a line between those rooms and the fire and hold it in check, knock some of the energy out of this fire, have someone on the crew go BES that room and see what we got? I. I just tend to I tend to feel like the water supply thing is it's hotly debated because a lot of guys feel like yeah. hey we, we lay in. You know, we have guaranteed water. We're not going to run out of water. And don't get me wrong. I'm sure you've been on fires where water supply has been an issue. I think we all have.
1: <laughs> well, so water supply, <laughs> there,
0: there no water supply. And we run out of water, uh, which is not a yeah. good a thing when you need it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Not too bad. Uh, or you get a situation where we're delaying search activities because we got crews that are not well-trained maybe are lesser trained crews that are taking too long on the hydrant or there's a hiccup on who's catching the hydrant and someone didn't stop or, you know, we, we, we laid, you know, there's, the distance was greater than we thought it was going to be. And now we have problems there. We got a shitty hydrant that has crap pressure. I mean, you name it, there's so many variables that go into water supply. But at the end of the day, I think it comes down to like, you got to know your district, you got to know what you're going into. You know, you have to be training people to make good decisions there has to be some discussion there on when you lay in. Again, maybe it's one of those things where the department says, Hey, if it's an offensive room and content fire, we are okay with straight in booster backup. No problem. If it's more than two rooms, you know, or you got a you know, a certain volume of fire, there's gotta be a cutoff somewhere where you're, Hey, you should probably have someone lay a hydrant, you know, into you or lay your own hydrant. Right. So, I think those are the things, the discussions I think that need to happen in the fire service because everybody wants a one size fits all. But yeah. the truth of the matter is you have to be able to, to factor all those different things that come in. And, and you as, a, as, a, as an officer, you know, if you're pulling up on something like that, does your mindset change based on parts of town you go to or, or you know, known building structures? Does your does your mindset change, you know, indi- individually? I'm not saying obviously you have department SOGs that you follow, but if you're going into a fire in certain parts of town or certain complexes, uh, apartments versus a, a house, uh, time of day, uh, where your mutual aid is coming. Do all those things to kind of start playing in your mind on, you know, if you had a, in Mark's Utopia Fire Department to <laughs> make the decision on that, you know, like make a policy. You know, where do you approach it? Where do you draw the line in your mind as a company officer in your experience? Where where do you say, hey, we can probably get away with booster backup versus we probably should lay our own hydrant or you don't have the second to catch the plug.
1: So for the sake of people that are listening, I'm going to, I'm going to sum this up with a few bulleted pointed answers, because otherwise this will turn into the seven hour water supply podcast. Um, I had this conversation with a good friend of mine a couple weeks ago about the difference between how we operate one way in rescue mode and a different way in offensive mode. But at the same time, we tell everybody expect victims every fire and it's not, clear until we search it so to me there's two modes there's offensive and defensive and that's where the knowledge of the district comes in um, I will also say a lot of these conversations exist in a vacuum because a lot of the time when we're getting to the hydrant we would need to catch we don't know these things we don't know if it's from the contents we we have a couple of notes on MDT if we're lucky and we have whatever's in the sky and so if it makes sense, lay the line. That's where I, I lay. I, I work for a fire department that says I'm going to lay first due unless there's some kind of weird thing going on. So, hey, it is what it is. I know my tactic most times. If I deviate, I got to be able to speak to it. But guess what? There's really not a reason to half the time, which brings me to my next point. A lot of the water supply conversation comes down to ego. Ask me how I know that because often me laying in first due is the difference between making the fire first due and making the fire second due. Did the citizens suffer because somebody besides the assigned first two company got there first? No, they didn't. I have to eat that. That sucks. It sucks to be beat to your fire by an egg company or the truck company gets up there and puts it out with a can. It is what it is, but you know, what doesn't suck being there with the line when you need it and things go bad. And so if you're going to have that conversation, you got to figure out what part of it's your ego first and get that out of the equation. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who brought water, who bought the attack line. That's why we send, you know, four or five companies to a fire, not one, because we all work together. Um, you know, I would say overall, man, the, the best thing is just to have a plan, make sure everybody's on the plan, make sure the plan is communicated. Part of that plan has to include though, that we, we built fire engines with water tanks for a reason. So I argue what good is water left in a tank? How is that any different than hose left in a bed? So balance those things. Uh, In my my closing remarks on water supply, and then I'm going to let you transition somewhere else, (laughs) is that the the most underutilized tactics in water supply are the reverse lay and the split lay, and they would solve so many of our problems if communicated correctly.
0: Yeah. No, I... Well, well said, man. Well said. And I know I-, I got on a little tangent there because I get uh, this is one of those debated topics in the fire oh, service, especially ass. among engine guys that, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. And you know, a few months ago, you were probably saw some of the back and forth on a couple of videos that were posted on Facebook and people going back and forth about it. And at the end of the day, I think it comes down to you have to have an operation. Obviously, we have a kind of a, a default position, I think, in most departments. You got to be really damn good at it whatever your default position is. However, the caveat being we should have the leeway to get our company officers should, and, and battalion chief should have the leeway to call an audible if they need to deviate from that initial plan. And, and, you know, again, coming from a place that did booster backup for a really, really long time and did it really well. Uh, sometimes that bit us in the ass because guys, you know, get too complacent. That's what we always do, whatever. And, when they should have told the second dude to lay a line, they didn't and, you know, we're behind the eight ball. However, again, you know, I think it comes down to training and it comes down to education and giving your officers the leeway and the, and and as long as they can justify why they're calling that audible, communicate that plan. Everybody needs to be on the same plan. What's happening. Right. And, and get it done. I mean, and that's what it comes down to with with the water supply thing. I'll I'll close on the water supply on this one thought is whatever your whatever your plan is you've got to be damn good at it if you're gonna be a, a department that lays in every time you need to be really really fast okay. at dropping that line and getting to the sea of the fire because every second that we're dicking around that we could have been putting water from our booster tank on that fire putting water you know on the fire searching for victims whatever it may be that's time that they're not getting back right Those, you know I think that's what it comes down to is we got to check the egos like I said even if it's not us if it's, it's second do companies making the attack because we stopped get the hydrant so be it. We have to work together because at the end of the day, the citizens don't give a, a rat's ass whose jurisdiction it's in. Yep. <laughs> they just need somebody to go in there, and put their fire out, and save them. Like and that's what it's down to. So uh, transitioning. So let's talk about <laughs> let's we talk about water supply, but uh, you know that's half the battle, right? That's that's the first part of the equation is getting some sort of water supply or water supply tactics and strategies and what we're looking at. But then we got to talk about our our actual fire attack, right? We start talking about hose loads. We start talking about nozzles. We start talking about, you know, attack packages. That's the new thing, right? And, and, and really, I mean, I think it's, it's good information that's being put out there, but I think sometimes students get overwhelmed by the amount of options and information that are put out there, right? There's a lot of stuff that's getting thrown out there. Obviously, there's a lot of different uh, opinions on hose loads, opinions on different nozzles, uh you know, and and we all have them. We all have them, and and I, I'm not saying that the seven eight smooth bore is the best nozzle for, for a suburban fire attack, but but it I mean, is, but it is. <laughs>
1: Man, you're going to throw every like turmoil, fisticuff star in conversation I've had at a fire conference. <laughs> you didn't think podcast. you were going to get out of
0: this easy. Oh,
1: man. All right. That's all right. I'm well versed in this one, right? So, <laughs> this is going to be a short conversation because A, I've had to talk about it so much in the past probably decade. And B, uh, I think I've actually talked about it so much that I've actually proven myself wrong in the course of speaking about it. So, I'm down to like, very small talking points. So, uh one let's start with the fact that like most things in the fire service that we don't understand is that the vendors drive a lot of these conversations into what makes them money so let's just start there okay? it ain't so yeah your your salesperson who is probably a firefighter working part-time is trying to make you know a commission off your sale and that's going to be the most expensive thing in the catalog so let's just start there no I'm, I'm kidding right there's a lot of great vendors uh from a lot of great companies that will shoot you straight uh but but in all seriousness, uh, that that vendors do drive a lot of our equipment choices because they make money off of us. That's the way the world goes around.
0: And apparatus design.
1: Oh man, don't even go there right now. We don't <laughs> have <time for> that. <laughs> um, so as far as the the attack package or the hose and nozzle combination or whatever you want to call it, um, you know a you got to kind of know what you're trying to get out of it. You know, what is your staffing? What, what are your fires? You know, what is your, your GPM range? What are you trying to flow out of the first line? What are you trying to flow out of the first two lines? We all go to 300 GPM. Why? Because that's what NFPA says, where that number comes from. It's like, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a tootsie pop? The world may never know, but 26. Yeah. But man, we live by that, right? We live by that 300. Well, that's great. If that puts your fire out. Um, And so Again, I, I think we can all agree that we want to be 150 plus on the first line that seems to be, you know, aside from the recommendation experience wise. I mean, I would argue it's probably actually less than that because for so long we didn't know about this stuff. We operated under pumped and under flowed and we, you know,
0: <laughs> we put out fires, right? Bro, bro, you know, you know, here's something crazy. When I first started out, our target flow requirement was 95 gallons per minute. Dude, I, I don't even know what it was. I, yeah. I, I
1: never heard of target flow until like six years into my career. I just got, you pump this line at this pressure and that's yeah. it. And then some guy who had been there long he would tell <laughs> you, ah, don't worry about that kid. Put it down. I can't handle it. I'm old. Right. Uh, yeah. But I think we were about the same. And, you know, but guess what? I've been into some fires with an automatic fog nozzle that was grossly underpumped, And although it kicked our ass, we the fire out now could yeah. we put it out a lot sooner with the proper package absolutely but yeah. but it worked and and this is where this conversation goes south with so many people because it did work for so long i.e the fire eventually went out that it's just it's a very emotional conversation for people so i'll put it to you like this man like i said i, I try to really oversimplify things because i think the fire service is so similar in so many ways and it's so different in other ways based on what you have, what your budget is, what your staffing is, what your aid package is, all that stuff. Um, so I think I think you got to be shooting for 150 or better. If you're not shooting for 150 gallons a minute or better on your first line, uh, you're probably not being as effective as you could be. I, I think we could just concede that that's. We'll just take that as the gospel for now until science proves us, you know, better in a different direction. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to get 150 GPM out of a lot of different nozzles and a lot of different hose. Uh, I would say, A, meet your hose and nozzle salespeople and have them out and put your hands on stuff because it's not like the old days where you just call and you order, hey, man, I need, you know, 100 sticks inch three quarter. Like there's 17 different kinds from 17 different manufacturers and they range in, you know, size from, you know, I don't know, like 0.10 0.10 to 0.20 uh, inches bigger, smaller than the other one. And so you really got to, they, they do go together. Uh, we don't have time to get into the weeds. So I'll say, learn what the Freeman's ratio is when you're trying to put a nozzle with your hose, know what the actual diameter of your hose is. You know, again, another spoiler alert, it's inch and three quarter hose ranges from 1.75 inches to 1.91 inches. And it makes a difference in your flow and the weight and and all that stuff. And that's where I say you really got to kind of know what you're going for. Um, I'm a smoothbore guy, man, and I'll tell you why. And here's why. And This is what, <laughs> this is what my argument has devolved into through the uh, evolution of nozzles and, and stuff is that uh, it's the cheapest option out there. I think we're all on a budget and you buy a shutoff and you buy a tip. And so that's nice. Uh, it doesn't have any really moving parts other than the ball valve to really maintain. So that's another plus. And uh, my third one would just be that if you decide to change your flow later, uh, you can just screw the tip off and buy a new one for even cheaper and screw it back on. And that's pretty much where my argument ends. Other than you look like a complete badass with a smooth bore and not with a fog. Uh, But that's not really something I could sell the citizens on. So, uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, The downside of that is that they're measured in fractions and all of us suck at fraction math. So there you go. There's a con for the smoothbore. I finally found one, right? (laughs)
0: Um, oh man!
1: If, if you've got to have a fog nozzle okay cool like i put out the bulk of my fires in my career i put out with automatic fog nozzles so i would encourage you to have a fixed gallonage with a stem fog nozzle so you know what you're flowing at what pressure which is essentially a smoothbore calculation with the ability to go left to right to fight whatever nonsense is that like, just keep it on straight stream all right that's all you got to do uh but again, understand your equipment. If you have fog nozzles, they can get clogged, not as easily as we claim they can, but they do get clogged. They have moving parts in them, and uh, and that is what it is. So that's kind of the dumbed down version of, of the attack package. Uh, I'll turn it over to you after I plant this grenade. Uh, I fully believe with the advances in technology and hose that one in my career before I retire, I think we will be back to some kick ass inch and a half hose that is flowing somewhere near the 160 range because it'll be, you know, new liners and everything, and it'll be hundred percent more manageable. And we'll realize that even having, you know, 210 gallons a minute is not as good as 150 or 160 over pumped. If we can't get it there because we made the hose bigger and then took people away at the same time. And that doesn't make you a bad fireman. It doesn't make you weak. It makes you human. And we gotta, we gotta deal with that someday. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, you're, dude, diameter creeps a real thing. And, and it's funny because we've had this mindset in the fire service over the last two decades, uh, you know, at least that I've been around the fire service, you know, is is so a lot of guys feel like bigger is better and, you know, oh, you know, 1.88, 1.91. Hey, yes, you have a bigger diameter hose that's capable of flowing more water. That's great. You know, and guys will argue, you know, that's the big argument for 15, 16s or even one inch tips. On instant three-quarter hose is you're getting these larger volume flows, which I would argue if you really need that much more flow for an offensive fire attack, either you need a second line or you need a bigger line. <laughs> that's that's well, my, my engine, you know, guy take on that. But but here's the thing: I think it comes down to staffing too, right? Because again, you have a larger hose flowing more water, that means more nozzle reaction, more weight in the hose, and you got a two-man engine company. And you want to be a badass and you want to flow 15, 16 or one-inch ship, that's great. Except for now, instead of being able to move and flow and to advance this hose line, you're fatiguing your guys faster because two guys are trying to move this hose that weighs more, that has more nozzle reaction. So what happens, guys, when guys can't keep the line open because the nozzle reaction is too much, they start half bailing it, gating it down or closing the, the line and repositioning. And we're not able to advance it at a pace that we would if we had a slightly lower flow with less nozzle reaction, less weight in the hose. And can make that fire attack, that push on that offensive attack. And so, I, you know, there is a balance, right? You have target flows, you have certain, you know, criteria, you know, you're trying to hit, you're trying to hit a certain volume of water to to overwhelm the BTUs, obviously. Um, And I think the guys get this mindset of like, you know, bigger is better. And sometimes that's not the case. If you have the staffing for it, I'm telling you right now, if I had committed to four guys on the engine at all times, and I could guarantee that, that I would have a backup guy on that hose line. I would say that the 1516 is a fantastic choice because you you have a guy that can back that guy up, right? They can take some of that load off that nozzle man where he's not fighting nozzle reaction, he's not fighting all that weight to that hose where the officer can have to go back and forth getting hose, right? I think that those are the things that you know if you have the staffing for it, I think a 1516 is a really, really great nozzle choice. But for most of the suburban setting where you have an officer and maybe a firefighter on a hose line, I think for most of the applications that we run into. I think it's just a better choice because you can over pump a seven eights and still have manageable nozzle reaction and get that volume, that 180 gallons a minute uh, volume Mm -hmm. out of that, out of that hose line. Um, And so, like I I said, I think it really comes down to you got to look at your staffing. You hit it on the head man you gotta look at your staffing you gotta look at what you realistically can move with your the people that are on your apparatus uh and and, and train on that obviously you a lot of us don't get a say on what we have on our trucks i've i've been on both ends of the spectrum with automatic fog nozzles and smooth bores i'm a smooth bore guy reach and penetration they're simple they they just have less moving parts uh you're getting lower lower nozzle pressures as a whole now do they make fog nozzles now that are low pressure nozzles absolutely i advocate if you're going to have a fog nozzle not to have a higher pressure fog nozzle but to have a lower pressure fog nozzle if you can so that the nozzle man's not getting his teeth kicked in trying to keep this line flowing at target flows and so what happens and this is what happened to me and i'm going to share this, this this experience because i think this is what happens in a lot of places that have higher pressure nozzles is we have 100 psi automatic nozzles and guys when you're flowing 150 160 gallons per minute on those they flow pretty hot and so what would happen is guys over time would get tired of getting their teeth kicked in and so they would bump it down bump it down bump down and so we went to a fire one time and we got in there and we're spraying water and the fire's not going out and i'm like man like the stream looks good like it feels okay i'm like what the hell and (laughs) we're just not getting this is a fire that we get nine times out of ten we put this fire out and we're not putting it out So the officer called back to the pump operator and asked him what he was pumping that line at. He had the pump discharge pressure on the gauge set at 95 PSI on a 200-foot cross-lay. Okay, we were only getting like 70 gallons a minute out the end of that nozzle, dude. And we had no idea because the way our acts are designed to work, it's like your thumb over the garden hose, right? The pressure looks fine. You're getting a usable stream. But we weren't getting the flow volume that we needed for that particular fire because it was being under-pumped pretty drastically so the point is no know, know what's on your apparatus know what you're working with because they do go hand in hand and here's the other thing too understand you know you talk about the freeman ratio and how that correlates to diameter you get a three-quarter hose that's actually 188 versus a 175 177. uh the flows you know affect nozzle width they they, they affect the reaction of the hose line and how it handles and how it performs 15 16 is better paired with 188. 7 eighths is Better paired with one point seven five or one seven seven, and that's what you'll find. So, really it comes down to what is your target flow, what is your staffing. Uh, you know, part of it is obviously what your departments willing to spend money on, and and, and <laughs> have uh, an option to get the reps out there and put some flow meters. And that's what I would encourage guys to do: put flow yeah, meters, up, see what those target flows actually feel like, how they react, and understand it is a package deal. Right, your nozzle has to, you know, kind of work together with the hose line. So, if you have a say. 1516 hose line uh, on a hose that's really designed for it's like a 175 177 hose you may get a little bit more adverse whipping and reaction because you're flowing a larger volume of water than what that hose is actually designed for right and conversely if you have a hose that's 188 and you have smaller diameter hose lines right you may not get optimal performance out of that hose so do your research get educated uh, you know, figure out what's on your trucks now and try to pair them up the best you can. At the end of the day, you know, if you're not in a position to change that, at least know what's on your rig. Right. Understand how that attack package works and, and how those flows kind of corroborate uh, with one another, with the, with the hose line handling, with the with the flows, with what it feels like when it's under pump, when it's under, you know, over pumped, under pump, when it's pumped where it's supposed to be. You should be able to feel those. Right. And that's the benefit of having a fixed gallonage nozzle, whether it's a fog or a smooth work is you can tell when it's under pumped you can tell when it's over pumped um so if that's my little soapbox on it i I know there's a lot more information out there obviously than than we have time to go over tonight but uh, learn what's on your truck learn what's out there get some reps out there like you said mark I, i think that's really what it comes down to um and then the other thing too is set your apparatus up the best you can for your jurisdiction so you guys run minute man right oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it works really really well for you yes it,
1: it does it's a for for our jurisdiction it it is versatile and uh for full disclosure i've i've had to put a triple on my truck before because it fit the the bed best i've, I've run a flat i've watched a lot of people preach flat so they could turn it into a minute man but that's a different conversation for a different day but uh, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah i mean it's <sighs> i don't know man I, I go back to a lot of these things with, with the package thing like you said right and mm-hmm. I got a couple quick bullet points and we'll, you know, again, I don't want to, we'll end up staying here for another hour, but um, the GPM thing, in, in perspective, when I came in the fire service for, if you're not familiar with the Indy stack, it was three tips that we had on the two and a half when I came in it was like inches and inches and, inch and a quarter, right? 200, 250, 300 drilled in my head. Uh, and so to put that in perspective with, with the one, eight, eight, you know, true, di- you know, real diameter hose and the 15, 16th, we're flowing one eighty five. So we're 15 GPMs from what a two and a half was when I came in the fire service. The difference being when we taught two and a half, there'd be like five people on it. Nobody could move it. And now we think two people can move 15 GPM less. And, you know, I don't know, maybe that's, you know, you know, tomato, potato, right. They're two different things, but that that's just a perspective thing. So um, I think maneuverability is going to be the next evolution of fire hose. I, I, I don't think it's going to be all GPMs anymore. I think we're getting more hoarder conditions. And so, if you can't move the hose in the house, it's not going to do you any good anyway. Um, t- to your point, Nick, the the real battle here is not smoothbore versus fog anymore. It's fixed gallonage versus not. It's knowing that at this pressure, I get that GPM. That's what's important. It's not the type of nozzle. It's it's that peace of mind to know what you're getting out of the end of that nozzle, that it's not dependent on whether somebody messed up. You'll be able to see it, and that's more important. Like, who cares if your stream looks pretty? Uh, uh, another thing is that you can't just fix this problem with a nozzle. I've seen a lot of people, and 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 for full disclosure, there's a, a time early on when I started learning about this stuff where I thought, oh, I'll just go buy a seven nozzle and put on my hose. And that is the fastest way to turn off anybody to trying to change your attack package because if you don't pair it with the right hose, it will not react well. Yeah. Junk hose will not do good with a good nozzle. Yeah. Uh, the, one of the better ways to accomplish this is to acquire yourself fifty feet of good hose with a nozzle that it's paired with and make that the finish on your cross lay. Because what we're finding out is that while ideally we would like, you know, I say good hose, you know, (laughs) paired hose throughout the entire cross lay is that if you can get that last 50 with a decent nozzle, while it will not perform as well, it will perform better and it's more cost effective for a lot of places and it's more reasonable. And it's also kind of that transition to having a conversation. Uh, Finally, my, my last comment is just, If you're listening to this and these terms that we're throwing around are kind of Spanish or, you know, insert language that you don't speak very fluently, uh, go learn the terminology. It's really hard to have these conversations if you don't know what nozzle whip and nozzle reaction and the Freeman's ratio and, you know, all the fixed gallonage. um, And and I'm not saying that to belittle anybody. It's, It's far from it's quite the opposite. It's just that I've tried to have conversations with people. And they're like, I don't, I don't know what a fixed gallonage is. Okay, well, you're not stupid. You just brought up in the same fire service I was, where it wasn't a conversation. So, if you're trying to have this conversation, somebody educate them. If you want to have the conversation, and some of this sounds foreign to you, you know, reach out to somebody who knows what it means and get educated. And that's going to set you up for success down the road because at least you'll know what you're talking about.
0: Oh yeah, a- absolutely, man. And, and you know, whatever we go around and teach, and especially. Um, you get a chance to compare different hose lines and nozzles and stuff. I always enjoy that because I really do think it's the best way for students in chiefs and administrators, if people are making the decisions or people are end users to really see what you're talking about is to actually physically put it in their hands with flow meters, right? Let them feel the difference uh, of different combinations and what that looks like. Um, but here's the thing, you know, what's crazy to me is people think hose is hose. That's what I was told coming in the fire service. And the reality of it is like, That's far, it's a far cry from the truth because we have hose now that's marketed as inch three quarter that has friction loss differences of, of 20 plus PSI in a 200 foot cross lay between same manufacturer, just different types of hose that are both marked as inch three quarter hose based on the type of liner, the hose construction, things like that, all those things play into it. And so that, you know, you don't think that's a big deal. That's a huge deal, you know? If you're under pumping or over pumping somebody by 20 psi, especially with a fixed-gallon industry nozzle, they're going to know about it. They're going to know real quick and in a hurry, right? And so, I think that's I think that's the biggest thing I would encourage people that are listening to this is do your research, reach out to people. If you don't know, reach out to those that maybe have some you know answers to those questions. There's a ton of information on you know online, on Facebook, on uh, you know different websites, social media, even the vendors. A lot of the vendors have information on their websites that are really useful for uh, at least getting ballpark figures for friction loss and things like that nozzle reaction so uh, do your homework it really is worth it it does pay off um, and again you know you have to have your your attack package set up for your operations meaning your hose load your your flow your target flows your nozzle should be set up for your jurisdiction right your flows your staffing your buildings right uh, it doesn't do me any good to tell you what I do in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, because you may have a jurisdiction that looks vastly different than what I have in, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, or staffing may be much different. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, you have to set things up for success based on what's going to give you the best results in your jurisdiction. So uh, changing, uh, shifting gears again, uh, just real quick, Mark, I wanted to get your thoughts from a, from an officer's perspective on engine company search, meaning either A, having to do search and or what we consider truck stuff uh, from the engine and, and then searching off the hand line, you know, what are your thoughts on the engine search and what are your thoughts on if your task search as an engine company? Um, do you, do you kind of lean towards, you know, are you okay with splitting guys off? Are you okay with, Hey, I'm going to search this room. You're going to search that room or vs. Hey, tell your chauffeur to VES that window. We're going to start a primary on you know the first floor. I mean, is it, you know, from, from your experience where you're at, Uh, in in west columbia is that something that you guys train on is that something you're a big fan of or uh do you typically are you blessed enough to have mostly trucks doing that uh where you're at i mean i you know like i said for me i'm a huge fan of engine searches because i've grown up having to do it my whole career um -hmm. but i know some people are you know real sticklers on like no if you're showing up one two with a truck that's the truck's job we don't search um i don't know what are your what are your thoughts on that mark
1: We'll start with this is, you know, for the chiefs listening, this is my favorite promotion board question. You're advancing the attack line. You find a victim. What do you do? Because there's no right or wrong answer to it. Honestly, it's just a matter of, I just want to know where your head's at. I just want to know that you've actually thought about it before, but anyways, I digress. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I work in a system where we, we resource type, we have run cards, we are getting a set number, uh of engines and support companies on every alarm now where they come from differs vastly where you are in the county i am fortunate that i am basically in the middle of all my age so we're getting resources extremely rapidly uh most days i have a truck company leaving the station with us or in the jurisdiction with us and so uh for me on a on a normal day um, fire attack is my responsibility or water supply uh now ha- having said that <laughs> That, that doesn't mean I, I won't go do a search. And, and again, this is know your system, know your resources, where things are coming from. Um, I think that this is where I get into the, I know we expect victims every time. However, if I'm tasked with putting the fire out, if I'm not arriving to somebody telling me Nick is in that room right there, I saw him, he is in there, I'm going to go put the fire out. And whoever I encounter on my way is a different story, and we'll deal with that as it comes. But as aside from, you know, we w- where I work, we have a term called rescue mode, which is you know, a, it's like escalating offensive in that we drop every assignment back one company, and it brings extra companies because we're expecting we, there's some kind of confirmation that I'll be a victim in there. Now, I, I don't like that from a water supply standpoint, like I said, because you're relying on information to somebody else, and we know that's not always correct. However, uh, if if we go for the rescue exemption, that means that I'm probably I may or may not pull a line. It depends what I want to do when we get there, what the conditions are. Uh, but but aside from that, uh, I'm going to stretch the line. I'm going to let the support company do the search uh, or, you know, it doesn't have to be a support company. Another unit is coming to to accomplish that because we're accomplishing fire attack. And and so I, I think that's where you have to live unless you have like they are right there that window right there that room right there i don't care if you VES. i don't care if you go old school and you just duck and roll inside the house with a can i I don't really care um but but to me that's the only way to deviate from fire attack because if it's not getting done everything else is getting worse and and now we're what about the other victims what about the communicating to the house next door what what if what if you can do it all day long uh but but i i believe that the engine aside from obvious rescue exists to put the fire out um I don't mind people searching off the line, uh, because I work under the premise that as the engine company, we should be going to the seat of the fire, and we teach everybody where to start their search. Okay, at the fire and work backwards, right? And so, uh, if I'm going to encounter somebody at the door, I'm probably going to know because somebody's doing door control, and otherwise, we're going to go find the fire. And you know, once we get a hold on it, if somebody wants to break off and I got contact with them and they want to search a room next to us or the fire room itself, hey, I'm cool with that. And it depends who's you know, how many crews, you know, like I said, with, with me, man, I'm getting so much help so quick. I usually don't have an assignment to give it all up. So it, it's kind of a, an unfair question, but you know, I, in other parts of our County and other places that I've worked, you know, you might get one or two companies quick. And that third and fourth company, if they were coming was, was pretty far out. So you may have to go do that. But uh, you know, like I said, I mean, first, first two engine, I, I think you got to put the fire out. It, it it truly does make everything better. That doesn't mean you're not looking for victims along the way with that tunnel vision. It doesn't mean you can't search, you know, on the way. It doesn't mean you can't, hey man, hold this room and I'm gonna search over here, you know, even if we're getting our ass kicked, right? Like, hey, just hold it and check long enough so I can clear these rooms. Let's get the hell out of here and let's back up and punt and reconsider our strategy.
0: Yeah, no, that's dude, that's uh it's interesting hearing you say that because I, you know, for the vast majority of my career, um I've been in a spot where you know, the truck company may be third or fourth due um, or or further out. Uh, even where I'm at now in the city I work in now, we have six firehouses. We have one ladder company and a quint. Um, and you may be, you know, two or three engines deep before you get uh, a ladder company, a true truck company, right, showing up on scene. Um, and so, you know, that's a whole other spin off. We can kind of briefly touch on that here in a second of engine companies doing truck work. Um, but the point is, you know, the, the, firefighter rescue survey has shown over the last you know few years that about 26% on average of victims are found by engine companies advancing into the seat of the fire. And so one of the things, you know, we talk about uh, engine search, it's, it can be as really as simple as just searching the small geographical area that you're going to on the way to the fire, right? It doesn't mean that you're foregoing fire attack um, and, and just abandoning a hose line altogether. Um, but it does mean that, you know, you can, you can kind of multitask if you will. Um, and there's, it, to me, it's, it's one of those things that I think really is situational. If I have a well-advanced fire where I know that we've got to get this line to the seat of the fire, right, it is imperative that we get there and we get there stat. Like, we got to get in there. Like, the conditions are deteriorating. We have to make this push. Uh, that's where one of those, you know, we talk about searching on the way versus searching, you know, hitting the fire and then working back. Um, I think it's situational based on fire conditions, staffing, things like that. Um, if I have a well-trained nozzleman, i got one or two rooms going that's a pretty bread-and-butter simple fire. And I feel that they can kind of, it's a pretty clean stretch, meaning we don't have a bunch of, a bunch of shit in the way, a bunch of hoarding conditions, anything like that, a difficult stretch um, where they can kind of make the advance. I am perfectly fine as, a, you know, as an officer, or as a backup guy breaking off the hose line and searching rooms as we go, because I know that that guy can hold his own on the, on the nozzle, right? He can shin pin, do whatever he needs to do. Uh, slide up a little bit, hit some more fire, you know, come back out. Hey, I'm going to move you some more line. Okay. I'm going to search this room over here. Not a big deal. Right. But again, if we have a difficult stretch, if we have a well-advanced fire, that's one of those I think that again giving training people to know when to do which one, right? Knowing when to say, hey, we're going straight to this fire, we're gonna put this thing out and we'll and we'll search on the way back and, and you know try to get victims out. Now, uh, you talk about finding a victim on the way. I think that's one of the things that I'll be honest, man, up to the last couple of years, I didn't really train a lot on. We just always in training, isn't it weird in training? We always seem to have like First crew finds the victims and the engine, you know, go to these burn buildings and they go put the fire out and they got one job. And how often do we actually train people on what to do when you encounter a victim? And does the victim size and the number of victims dictate your, your mode of operation at the point? I think it does. If you got a 600 pound victim, there's no way, there's no way that one dude is dragging that guy out. It's just not happening. So, you know, again, can you isolate that victim? You know, do you go put the fire out and then, hey, we got a victim in here, get some more help? And I think so. Um, you know, people will argue that, hey, you know, go put the fire out first and then worry about the victims. Again, I think it's situational. If I have a six-year-old kid, can I, you know, as a company officer, can you grab a six-year-old kid real quick, run them out the front door to your driver and hand them off? 100%. And, and be right back on that hose line with your man in a matter of seconds? Absolutely. But I think, again, it comes down to that conversation has to be had before the fire, right? You have to have those training drills. Uh, what are you going to do if you find a victim? You know, what do you who's who's searching? Are we searching at all? Are we going to hit the fire and work our way back? I mean, those are things that need to have, you know, have happened in our minds, I think, before we ever go to the fire because we're not going to m- mystically just pull up and and all of a sudden we're just God's gift to the fire service and we're kicking indoors and pulling. Four victims out on the engine and putting fire out and canceling the truck and the squad and everybody else. You know, some some days, some, some, some days. days. <laughs> but but you know uh, you know I really think that it's interesting to hear your, your position on it because I, I do agree with you that um, even in a, a known rescue scenario, sometimes we may need to do both. Right. So I think about back in '99. Remember the three firefighters that died in Iowa, Kayoke, yeah. Iowa. Uh, that nobody heard about. <laughs> they, yeah, they went to rescue mode, right? That was the mode. They went to rescue yeah. mode, and all three of those guys went looking for the victims upstairs. and what happened? The fire continued to grow. It was unchecked, cut them off, cut them off, and they all died in the fire. So uh, you know, I think we really have to take a good, long, hard look if we're gonna abandon uh, you know, and go to rescue mode and go to search only. And well, we're not it, putting water in the fire, I think we really have to look at where's our second do, right? Do we have a line coming behind us pretty quick? I think that's a different scenario, and and do we maybe have a guy hold it in check and just buy us some time, you know, where we can do a quick search? I, I think those are conversations, though, that it's easy to, to cookie-cutter and say the engine does attack, the engine does – or, you know, this, this company does search. and But at the end of the day, you know, at least in my experience, I feel like we have to have better – do a better job as a fire service having conversations that realistically look at what we physically can do because we like to think we can do it all at one time, but we more – we can't. We physically cannot be in multiple places at one time. Well, and, and this is where we, we like to overdose
1: on things too, man. And and this is like, again, I'm going to throw out for full disclosure here. Like, I think VES is a fantastic tactic in a wide range of situations. But, man, I wish I remember who said this because this is not a Mark Lone original thought. But, but one of the last times I went to a class somewhere, uh, one of the much more <laughs> experienced people than me was like, you know, did everybody forget that you could just go in the freaking front door and go to that house to go to that room in that house? Like, you don't have to. You don't have to initiate a search through a window every time. Like, you don't have to be a ninja breaking down a window. Like, you can use the front door. It's okay. And so, if if you're going to a suburban style house, and again, I'm not talking about Mc, McMansion or you know something like crazy like that. I'm talking about 1,500, 2,500 square foot ranch, you know, single family home. If they're anywhere on the first floor in, in <laughs> on the alpha side of the building, like. I hope that you're proficient enough as an engine company that you can get your hose on the ground and charged fast enough to get in there probably faster than you could initiate a VES because it's foreign to you off the engine company probably. Or, you know, what if you need a VES ladder? What if the window's high? You still got to get your butt in it. You know, I don't care what you're doing. Like using the front door is probably faster. So don't write that off as a tactic. I mean, that's that's one-on-one to me. Um, and, And another one I'll throw at you, man, that, you know, again, you know, I'll, I'll, dog myself on this one one of the first uh multi-unit drills i went to when i went to west columbia uh you know we we had a horrible stretch we, we were not getting it done and i found a victim so i popped my butt out the door with it and i threw the victim and i got on the radio and did all the right things and i left it there and the feedback was like hey you know you didn't turn that victim over to anybody so what happens in a real fire you're just going to toss the victim in the yard and then hope for the best and that's i, I know you mentioned the driver and that works but until tell the drivers doing that 200 foot handjack we talked about in the beginning. There's nobody out there to get that victim to. And that's, again, anything you talk about the fire service is going to be situational. Anything. And so, like you said, have the conversations. Because in, in, in the place of any actual experience, maybe if you're lucky, you'll be like, hey, that time I listened to that podcast or that conversation we had in a bay or, you know, we threw this idea around in a hot wash, whatever it is that little spark might be just enough to make you successful. It can't, it can't hurt you to have the conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. I, you know, again, it comes down to, we have to, we do need to expect victims, but I think that more good, more often than not, unless you have a known victim location. And even then, you know, can we put somebody in a doorway to protect the stairs with a hose line while someone makes the stairs to do a search? Absolutely. Do we, you know, I think we, we kind of pigeonhole ourselves and We're doing one or the other, like we're either doing fire attack or doing search. When in reality, a lot of times those lines are blurry. A lot of times there's a gray area there where you could possibly do both, um, you know, via an engine search or protecting a stairwell or, or, you know, like, uh, the brothers in Fort Walton beach had a couple of years ago where they had a hose line protecting the VES of a known victim, you know? And so those are things that I think that, uh, is engine companies don't be afraid to use your hose line for protection for the search. And really at the end of the day, if you want to argue, because you know we, we argue that the truck's there to support the engine, right? Which in most scenarios, yes, that is the that is the truth. They're there to support the engine. However, the one thing that the engine does that does support the truck, and it's really not so much supporting the truck, it's supporting a certain tactic, which is search. The, the hose line first and foremost has to protect the search. Because even if we know the house is a loss, right, even if the house is Three quarters involved. We can still use our hose line to protect the search of those one or two rooms that are still searchable, right? We can still use the the reach of our stream, the volume of water coming out of the stream, to at least hold and check long enough for us to affect a search. And so that is the one place where I do feel like the engine does support the truck operation, if you will, of search. Is you know really and truly, you know that's our first priority. We always talk about life safety being number one, right? The victims first, and that's really what it comes down to is. You know, yes, the truck is supporting the fire attack, um, but don't be afraid to use the hose line. I'm not saying to search with a hose line because I think that that's really, really slows us down and ends up being more harm than good. But if you have a VES or you have a known victim or a likely victim scenario where we can use the reach of a stream and just have someone hold their position, even if it's a driver in the front door with an air pack on and a hose line defending the stairwell. So the officer and the firefighter can affect a rescue upstairs on the Dude, townhouse. Even if
1: it's a driver in the yard with no air pack flowing through a window, who gives a right. shit? Well, right. It doesn't matter.
0: At the end of the day, yeah. it's about saving victims and 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 putting the fire out. So yeah. Don't be afraid of your shit.
1: So I'm gonna fast forward on you here. I'm gonna take the reins and I'm moving us on to truck work for 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 engine companies because you, you sparked it with, with what you just said, man. It kind of it gets my brain turning. Of uh, I understand why we call it truck work but we have to understand that not everybody has a truck company. Not everybody's truck. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a strategic assignment. Okay. It's, it's in support of things. That's fine, but it doesn't have to come from the truck company. And so I'll give you some examples. One, you don't have a truck company. Okay. The search still has to get done Two, your truck company is out of service or on another call. Okay. It still has to get done. Uh, some some places have quints, and when they're operating in their district, they they have it. They're an engine company, and when they're out of district, they're they're a truck company. And so, the search needs to be accomplished based on a due assignment. It doesn't matter what the truck looks like. You drive in a tank, I don't care what it looks like. You know, if you arrive second and you're a you're a company other than like a, a command unit, you're doing search.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, let's not even start about the fire SUV. No, oh then <laughs> But
1: but no, in, in all seriousness, man, like, you know, that's something I, I really love in our system, is that like we spell out that hey, you know, okay, the either the first due truck company or the you know third due engine company will do search and/or vent. Well, whoever arrives first, it doesn't pigeonhole you into okay, well, this, you know, as an incident commander, this assignment, because of the way it's policy, can only be accomplished by a truck company. Now, look, if you work in a a more urban than rural suburban area. And you've got truck companies coming out, you know, every alleyway into this fire. Cool. Like let the truck do it. Right. That's their main mission. But uh, you know, I worked for an department that had 15 engines and two truck companies. And, you know, when I worked at a station with a truck company, it got there fairly quick. And when I didn't, it was usually fourth or fifth due and it was blocked out and there was, you know, it wasn't doing anything because it, we just, it you know, we didn't prepare for it. Right. Um, but I, I also worked, Alongside people that didn't embrace their truck mission. And so I did a whole lot of searching off the engine because they wanted to do a whole lot of firefighting off the truck company. And at the end of the day, it had to get done. So that's where I go back to, like, check the ego, man. Like, it's not about who did it or what they did it from. It's about that it got done. And I'll tell you, it's an incident commander. it, It doesn't tell me on the command sheet. Whether or not the truck did it, it's a box and it says, Did you do this? Yes or no, as a reminder. And so I don't really care again what it came. You could come off the medic. You could come off the rescue if we didn't cancel it. I don't really care what you came off. i of, talking man. my language now. Get it done.
0: Hey, so, so yeah, dude, you know, coming from previously worked for a system where we didn't have a truck company. And, uh, you know, and, and I wanna, I wanna really just just for like just a second. Okay. If you are on a suburban engine or a rural engine, the chances are you have to be kind of a jack of all trades. You have to be versed in traditional truck work because based on your arrival in the needs of the, the, the scene, you may be tasked with going to the roof for ventilation. You may be tasked with doing search. You may be tasked with laddering a building. You may be tasked with you know forcible entry, writ, whatever. We don't have the luxury in most of suburbia of saying, nope, I'm an engine. I do water supply and fire tech. Nothing else. That's just not the, the the world that we live in in suburbia. And the reality of it is, I mean, and I know, like you know, a couple of years ago, uh, you were down in Florida taking a a a, ver- a, a saw class, a ventilation class, and and saw work, and, and you're on an engine. Because yeah. is there a possibility that you could do roof work mm-hmm. on an engine? Yeah, I, I mean, dude, think about it. Even in an urban setting,
1: they don't send an equal number of engines to truck companies they're not sending four companies that are all doing fire attack and water supply. Like it's a redundancy, but all those people, like there's not enough fire type to go around. I mean, how many fires do we go to in a residential setting that require four hand lines right. uh, I mean, or, or seven different water supplies? So if, if you just, if you're anywhere USA, that's, you know, again, you're not in a major Metro you're anywhere else, but Metro USA, I guarantee your first LR package looks something like three engines, one ladder and a chief. four engines, one ladder, two chiefs, five engines, two ladders, one chief, or insert some kind of you know again unbalanced you know apparatus assignment.
0: Engine so, <laughs> heavy.
1: Yeah, it, it More always often is. or always not. Yeah. And so like what do you what do you think you're gonna do off the engine if you're not first or second? It's probably another function. I would even argue, man, and and I don't know, maybe I'll change my mind one day when I have to write the policies, but like the second do engine, I don't need a second line or backup line. I need you to start the search because yeah. <laughs> I feel like the the cases where we find people are far more than the cases where the first line had catastrophic failure and put us in jeopardy, especially again, in a single family home.
0: Yeah, no, I, I yeah, 100%. I think initial attack line, if you really had to sum it up r- really and truly, Search in a fire attack have to be the one two punch that has to be the top of our priority list on the vast majority of fires that we go to, especially in a residential or multi residential okay. setting. Has to be the one two punch. Uh, then you could probably throw in there, you know, start talking about like ventilation and enforceable entry, those things are important, right? Um, but those are things that we have to consider every fire and they don't always fall on a truck company. Uh, you know, I tell people all the time, I've, I've done Plenty of ventilation on an engine. I've done search off an engine. Uh, I can't tell you how many times we force our own door, forcible entry from yeah, you, the engine. Waiting for the truck. If they're they're fourth out, you're going to stand right. on the
1: porch. Oh, no, we don't know how to do this. The key, the key to the city has not arrived yet. We'll, we'll get there right. soon. Get so
0: yeah, ex- exactly, man. You know, and and I think that that's where people again, in most systems, it's a, it's a what needs to be done, the order of arrival, who's showing up. Yep. You know that's what it comes down to, and so that being said, you know, suburban engines, you have to, yes, you should be really, really good at water supply and fire attack, really, really good at it, putting the fire out. But I think we also have to be, you know, jack of all trades, so to speak, and, and be subtle enough to understand, you know, how to force doors, how to do search, how to do ventilation. Uh, and so our training has to reflect that. Now, that kind of transcends into uh, our next topic, and we're going to talk about just briefly for a few minutes here leadership at the company level um you're obviously in an officer position and you know part of we'll we'll kind of segue with this um a big part of of leadership at that level is making sure your people are prepared for what they may face right a big part of of leadership at the company level has to do with readiness has to do with training has to do with you know physical preparation mental preparation there's a lot of you know stuff that goes into before the, the run ever comes in and Sometimes I think that that gets you know lost in translation with our day to day activities because we got oh we got to do so many inspections and we got to do this PR event and we got to you know figure out what we're eating and this and that and and guys sometimes I think lose sight of what our overall objectives are in the Monday and they get kind of in the rut if you will and they lose sight of that so uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on you know, you know as far as leadership at the company level what are some things that you feel like as a service that we're doing well. What are some things that you think we need to do better? You know, what are some things that you know you look at as where you started in the fire service, where we're at now that that you feel like has progressed in a good way, and maybe some things that you feel like maybe we're getting away from, uh, some things we should go back to, or maybe some things that have popped up in our in our mission that have kind of diluted our our focus. Yeah. Um, what What are your um, thoughts on that, Mark? I think
1: overall, and it's really hard to to say what we're doing well, because I can tell you something, we're doing well and you'll have seven people that listen to this be like, we didn't do that in my fire department. You're disconnected. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I think overall, I think, I think one, we've identified the need for leadership at the company level. Um, And I say that not that it wasn't there before, but it's, it's more of a formalized approach now and not that it has to be a formal process, but we've identified there needs to be leadership that we can't just put the person with the most time on the job in there. We've we've kind of realized, I think, as a profession that you should be halfway competent to be leading people in any capacity. So I would say that's a step forward because I know, um, at least from a little bit of time I have in the fire service and then people have been in longer, like that was not always the case. Usually it was, it's my turn and now I don't have to do anything. And I think you're seeing more engagement out of leaders. I mean, I, I can sit, uh, I have chiefs that we sit and listen to the, you know, they tell us how it used to be when they were, you know firefighters and how they they never saw the company officer unless they were on runs or they were eating they, they hung out in their room all day they only talked to other officers or chiefs like they did not interact and i'm like how can you run a company into an environment where like you don't even know and i and i don't know maybe they ran more back then and they just they ran so many calls together they just trusted this person maybe they didn't have a choice it's just how it was um so i think we're, we're much more engaged uh i think there is much more education out there for company officers, whether it's leadership, whether it's tactics, whether it's, you know, strategic planning, whether it's budgeting, like we're inviting company officers into the bigger picture. Now, I think for the most part, and again, I know that's not everywhere. Um, And and I'll throw the asterisk down there that, you know, that that education is great when we apply it. One of my pet peeves is when we require, you know, strategies and tactics for suburban operations in fire officer 37 and then you know we promote you because you got those classes and you try to do the things you learn in those classes and you're informed that's not the way we do things here so i think we got a little ways to go on really either adjusting the education to meet what we do or allowing people to use their education to adjust the way we do things and that's kind of the next step um you know, I, I think the other thing that we're we're doing well in the fire service is I think we're starting to see, you know, whether we're forced to see it by people through attrition or we're we're starting to forecast better. But I think we're seeing more in an investment in people before they make company officer. Um, and that's something I had to change my mas- mindset on is that when you test for, you know, engineer or master firefighter, whatever you call it, your fire department, whatever the rank is before you get to company officer, you're actually testing for company officer cause you're going to function in that role in a move up capacity. And when you test for company officer, you're really testing for chief officer. And you know, that's something I, I, when I came through, it was not that way. And, and so I think it's a really good step uh, cause you're identifying people's strengths and weaknesses before they get into that role permanently. And you can kind of curb some of that stuff. Uh, you know, as far as we need to do better uh, you know, I, I think we're too soft. I, I really do. Uh <laughs> I get it. It's not your father's fire service um, turning into the dinosaur that I probably hated when I came through. Uh, But we are just way too soft as far as what we allow to slide and the the lowering of the standard as far as competency and engagement. And, you know, well, not everybody loves fire service like you. Well, that's fine. But, you know, they're still here. And, you know, if you're on the career side, like, you know, my battalion chief says it all the time. And it's something I've kind of taken from him is that like, Hey, did you return your check when it hit? Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, they paid you to do a job. And so you should do that job. And, you know, if you're a volunteer, um, you know, you're doing all these things for free. Like I would hope you would take it seriously and you would want people to a high standard. And that if, if you're having to lower the standard to keep people like something else is wrong, like there's there, that's, it's not that easy. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I just don't believe it. I, I don't believe that our, staffing problems are a result of our standards being too high and if we continue to lower them it'll attract more people because i think the opposite is happening i think we're running good people off because we're letting you know shitbags, bags for lack of a better term invade us um you know i i think we could do better um as far as the development you know i, I guess that's kind of con- countering what i just said but like the actual development in house and these programs we do a lot of it seems like it's pushed out to like a fire academy class or something but I think a more practical approach to development of you know I my buddy Mark Davidson was in training forever up in in Fairfax and I think they had the one of the coolest programs I've ever seen where you know your officer academy and and again I I get we don't all have these big academies but I think you could do it on a regional even a department level but you know, they, they ran mock calls, you know, they, they dressed out, they got on the truck, they did radio traffic, uh, you know, they didn't figure it out the, you know, the day they were blessed to ride the seat. They had done it before that. And so I, I think that's something we need to do better. And then I also think continuing education, I think we kind of have this, Hey, you got the spot, you know, and now you're blessed. And, and there's just, we never really go back and, You know, as we age, if we don't keep up with the fire service, we don't keep up with the trends and the science and what's going on in the world. It just kind of becomes, Oh, well, that's just Mark, you know, he's old. That's just how he does things. That's, that's not acceptable. (laughs) If that's the case, then you you should probably retire, I guess. I don't know. And I, I get it. There's things I don't want to change and there's things I I probably should change that I don't. But um, if nobody tells you, if nobody forces you to stay up with it, you know, how, how would you know? And that's even more important now because, we have more generations, you know, on our roster, you know, can, you know, spread out than we've ever had before. And the job is hard enough with one or two and you're having to, you know, complete the mission and then adjust your style to all these these different age groups with their own needs and nuances and all that, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, talk about doing things better. At, at some point we need to bring a little more of that, you know, I, I think it's good we're not <laughs> is autocratic as we used to be, but some of that paramilitary could really use a place back in our fire service as far as like, you know, okay, well, I told you to do it, do it. And, you know, if it's operational, you're going to do it. We'll talk about it later. if it's in the station, maybe we can have a conversation, but uh, everything's up for negotiation now a lot of the time. And I don't, I don't think that's a positive for us.
0: Yeah, no, I, I could, I can definitely see that, man. You know, I think we definitely, um, I don't know. It's just things have changed over the last, you know, Really, the last decade in particular, I feel like there's been a big shift in the in the fire service, and and things like you said have become a little bit more uh, accommodating to people that ne- don't necessarily want to meet the standards we used to hold, you know. And you know, anytime you water down, anytime you water down in a critical service like that, and I think that's the thing. You know, we're not flipping hamburgers here; we're making life or death decisions at times, and and it really comes down to it. You know, I think people got to remember, like we're going to people's family, you know, we're going, we're responding to people. We're, we're taking care of people. We're making decisions that uh, affect our, our people, our citizens. And, you know, do you really want somebody who's skated by and has just got to pass because, well, we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be mean and and tell them, Hey, you're not cutting it. Or, Hey, you need to step up to the plate and do better. Um, You know, as a service, I I can completely agree with that. Um, On that, on that note, um, you know, what is, what are some, challenges you see for the modern fire service, you know, for the company officer in today's age, what are some of the biggest challenges you think, uh, you know, that are, that we're facing now uh, at that level? I mean, what are some things that really stand out to you that you feel like uh, maybe that are new, new challenges that have come because of changes in policy and mindset shift? Um, and then also maybe some things that are just ongoing in the fire service Um, but things that you kind of have witnessed either firsthand you know experiences or are watching, you know, different firehouses or talking to guys, what are some things that kind of resonate with you and stand out that you think that uh are really something we got to tackle uh today at that level?
1: Yeah, I think probably the biggest challenge that I see is we're we're just so overtasked. There's there's just so many things that have to get done and you you know, I'm one of those people where if, if I make a list for the day and I don't get through it, I feel like a failure, which, you know, again, it's, it's not an accurate statement. But if I put down, you know, six things I need to accomplish today and I only get through four of them, I, I look at that as a loss. And that's it's not true, but that's just the type of person I am. Um, but but there are just there's so many needs and there's so many strings pulled on the company officer. You know, you're supposed to be a training officer. You're supposed to be a partner you're supposed to be an incident commander. You're supposed to be, you know, the the senior firefighter in, in the suburban environment. Um, you know, I, I teach a class about short staff company operations. And that, that's one of the things we talk about. It's just like, I have a slide where we just start adding responsibilities and, and you just see how overwhelming it gets. Um, and a lot of the time, like that stuff needs to be done. Um, you know, and again, like you said in the beginning, man, I, I don't I don't work in suburbia anymore. I work in an urban environment, but we're, we're a one station department. And we don't have the administrative staff that everybody else says. So obviously, you know, I just took on radio programming. You know, I'm learning how to do that. Like it takes up a lot of time uh, and that's time I can't give to my guys. That's time um, that I can't give to myself for training. And at some point there's just not enough hours in the day. Um, if, if I had the the solution, I would sell it because I think I'd make millions. Um, you know, I, I think that's a big challenge. Yeah. Um, I think a, a, another really big challenge is just the sterility of society in the firehouse now. And it's so hard to have fun, um, you know, because it is a lot of dark humor and crudeness and, and cutting up. And and sadly, I, I think most people respond to it, uh, but it takes one person in the room to end your career over a poorly placed joke. And unfortunately, the higher up you go, the the more expectation that you won't have that poorly placed joke comes and and, it, and it's sad man and, and i get it um but at the same time you know i know a lot of people in other industries and they are not as censored as you think like they, it all still goes on in corporate america and i don't know why we act as a fire service like we can't have a personality and a sense of humor anymore and you know any you know profane joke is gonna you know sink the ship it's it's stupid but i mean that's, that's the world we're in right now and again, how do you, how do you build a family environment? How do you develop a personal relationship with your crew members to build trust when you have to walk on eggshells, which you say because of how they feel that day or the experience they had or who they date or, you know, whatever it comes down to insert social issue that is just killing us right now. Um, and it's not just us, it's everybody. And that's, you know, I'm not even going to go down that soapbox. Um, you know, I don't want to offend anybody, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's the new response. I'm
0: offended. Yeah,
1: I know. I'm offended. You're offended, you know, <laughs> check, you know, but, um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a really big challenge as far as being a company officer is that you, you have to be that person and more importantly, you have to force that. And I mean, man, some of the stuff people will come to you with these days, you know, well, you know, Nick said I was dumb. Okay. Well, that makes me sad. Okay. Like what, what, what do you, what do you do with that, man? Like, I, I don't know. Like, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that's a tough thing I think. Yeah. Um, and, and then I think finally, man, just, we, we we continue to operate under this falsehood of doing more with less. That's been a lie since day one. And we just keep shoving it down our throats and when it doesn't work out, you know, welcome to middle management. It, it's your fault you you couldn't make it work you couldn't take what you know you're not thankful for what we gave you 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 know and and that's you know I, that's a lie we've perpetuated since the day we decided we we're going to put ourselves out of business and until we finally come up with the the courage to say enough is enough like we can't do any more with what we have we can't even do what we have with what we have it's it's the punches and the beating will continue
0: yeah no that's dude yeah but- let me ask you something. Do you think as a as a service that we we overcomplicate this whole leadership and, and, and a lot of in general, do you think we tend to overcomplicate stuff? Do you think we make things harder than it has oh, yeah. to be in the firehouse yeah. oh, at the, no, the no, administrative level, at the company level?
1: I do, man. I, I think we're we're in a. This is going to sound like a very odd term, but it's just what comes to mind. I think we're defensively reactionary. I think we're we're always on the defense where we have these fast reactions to problems that, that don't exist. And um, I mean, I, there's, there's gotta be a meeting about a meeting and there's gotta be a process to create the process. And at, at some point, like, I feel like sometimes we we're so worried about everything, but running calls and, and we forget at the end of the day, we exist to answer calls for service. And I understand you have to train. I understand you have to prepare and you have to buy things. You have to procure things. You have to test things. Like I get it, but at the company level, I don't care how big or small your organization is. Like that should be the priority. Like you shouldn't be upset. And I look, man, I'm, I'm the first to admit it. Like there is nothing worse than being, you know, All sorts of deep in a project in in the office and you're finally making some progress on writing that policy, right, or or getting your purchase order approved so you can get whatever the guys have asked for and and the tones drop and, you know, it's for some BS and you're like, man, freaking call right now. Like, I don't need a call right now, but that's why we're there and i think we forget that so many times because we we are so business oriented now it's like that so focused on the customer until they call and we don't give a shit about it or it's it's just i don't know it's a very odd dichotomy i guess
0: let me ask you this do you think that part of that problem some of our problems that we've created have become have become problems because of our shift from a blue collar call service oriented mindset to a white collar justifier existence, do more with less, you know, almost <laughs> that, 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 that white collar approach to the business. And I, I, and you know what I'm trying to say here? I think now I guess I, what I'm, I'm getting at is do we create more problems by trying to constantly take on more and more and more to show how involved we are and we're, you know, when we got and how professional we are, because we've got all these committees and all these, you know, all these people, you know, taught meetings about the meetings and, and how official we are with pomp and circumstance and rank and, you know, all these projects that we have going on in the community. Do you think that that has hurt our, our ultimate mission? Do you think that some of that that desire to be more respected in the white collar community has actually hurt the fire service? In the sense of, you know, kind of diluting and watering down our our core values and and, and mission to what we're supposed to be doing.
1: So I'll surprise you with the answer. And I actually say no. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, I my experience in the fire service and traveling around is that the fire service is still very much blue collar at the company level. and And people who don't want to do the job didn't wouldn't have wanted to do the job 20 years ago when things were different. They really wouldn't. Um, I, I think what has changed and what we're having trouble with is that society has changed. And I, I think the white collar element of the fire service has always been there. There's always been a chief. There's always been a budget. There's always been policies. Um, a lot of the committees and projects are, are shit that we ask for as firefighters. We want to be more involved. We want to be in the know. We want to have a say. We want to spec what we ride on. You don't ride on a chief. What the hell do you care where the crosslays are? And then we get these things and we bitch oh, well, my time's tore up now. You know, I got to go to this stupid apparatus committee that I asked to be on, but, you know, it's not as exciting as I thought. So all I really want is a federal queue, and now I'm out. I mean, that, we're our own worst enemy on the blue-collar side, I, I can't lie. Um, but I think uh, what, what hurts us on the white-collar side is that while we do accept more responsibilities and we kind of branch out and things, that's fine, but we continue to add services without personnel, and that's that's the disconnect to me. Um, and, and that's where, and again, man, like I'm not a fire chief, so please take this with a grain of salt, like me and the city manager, we don't hang out and talk about the fire department. In fact, I don't even think he knows my name, right? I think he knows my face. He probably doesn't know my name. So
0: that's me it's the and mustache.
1: Hennifer, yeah, man. Like, <laughs> but, but we've never sat down and talked about long-term sure. planning for the city. So I, I say this with a great assault, but I think uh, what I, what I've seen and from people I talk to is that there is this this weird thing in government sometimes where, I don't know that the fire chief always gets listened to like he should or we forget that, you know, we don't make any money and we cost a lot. And so people are not itching to give us everything we want, even though we know why we need it. You know, the average citizen will never meet us on a service call, but they'll go to the park 52 times a year. And and that's 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 crap. But at the same time, you can't have a world class (laughs) fire department you know, on a, on a school lunch budget, you can't do it. And so if you want to add, you know, community risk reduction, if you want to add community paramedicine, if you want to add another station, if you want to take on a different discipline, you got to be prepared to fund it. And that's not a, it's not that we can't have those conversations. It's not that there's not a way to do it. It's not that you can't begin the process, but I think too often we're like, Hey, you know, Chief Pepper, I want the fire department to do this. Okay, sure. But we need, you know, six more people in and in a, in a, in a, some kind of a supervisor and a trailer. Well, you can't have that. Well, with all due respect, sir, like we can do it then, but it's not being a good service. Like, I, I don't know how that conversation goes. Um. So so that's why I say no, man. I, I don't. The white collar part is there. It has sure. to be there. Yep. But we're well, not... Well, No disrespect. When I say this, please don't. Somebody should take disrespect. I shouldn't even say. But (laughs) most of these agencies are operating on million, multi-million dollar budgets, whether they're volunteer or municipal. Like you have to have some kind of white collar understanding to manage that kind of money. And so to say it can't be there is crap. Now, I will say that I think that too many wannabe blue collar workers have allowed that stigma to let them drift away from the blue collar firemanship we speak of. And that's an accountability problem that we fix on the floor.
0: Sure. You know, that's really well said, man. And I think one of the biggest things too, and this is one of the conversations you hear brought up is the company officer kind of bridging the gap and keeping the, the chief officer's you know, kind of down toward the rubber meets the road, but also communicating expectations and realities to the guys below them. And the company officer plays a pivotal role in kind of bridging the gap, both up and down the chain. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's it's dangerous to have a company officer that's a yes man that's always, you know, like whatever company guy to screw the little guy. Like you know, like hey, well, it is what it is, guys. This is what you know. It's what's going to happen. I think it's you know, I think it's actually. It's a, it's a balancing act because there's times where, yes, do you have to enforce the SOGs and the policies? Yes. But I think we also need to be in, in, in our supervisor's office as a company officer and in, in trying to get the why and in the understanding. Because if you can help people understand the why, whether they like it or not, at least that makes it a, a pill that they can swallow most of the time where it's like, okay, I, I kind of understand the reason why. But also, you know, you hope that you have a good enough relationship with those guys above you as well, right, to – to help them to see the side of, you know, the operational side of things that the guys are experiencing firsthand, because the, the longer the people are in those chiefs positions, the, the easier it is to forget what it's like for those guys that are running calls two, three, four times a night that are going on runs that are. And, and so yeah. I think that really that's where the officer comes in of like, I think, you know, you can't be all one way or the other. Right. And maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I, my take on that's wrong. I, I just feel like you have to be able to explain the why to the guys and be able to, voice their grievances up the chain but at the same time be able to talk to the bosses in a candid fashion enough where you're you know you're not just going up oh, that's what they said i'm not gonna ask any questions hey guys you gotta do this now i think that's also a disservice as as, as a company officer to your people if you're not kind of going to bat for them and taking you know some of their issues to, to court if you will uh yeah. with with the guys above and, and maybe like i said maybe i'm i'm wrong but in my limited experience in that role i feel like that is important i feel like you have to be able to to be able to kind of bridge that gap and, and be able to meet on both sides. And it's a compromise, right? Cause the reality of it is you're probably going to piss somebody off along the way. Uh, either the guys aren't going to be happy with your decision that you're enforcing, or the boss is going to be like, Hey, why are you questioning me? You know, you're going to well, have those conversations. <laughs> First of all, nobody's ever happy. Learn that right now at any level. Nobody's <laughs> right. ever happy. Everybody's right. pissed
1: off all day, but, um, <laughs> No, man, something I've kind of coined and something I tell my guys is like, you know, I'll give you all the input that you want. But but you have to understand going in that everything that you have input on is not actionable. I'm sorry you feel that way, but sometimes that's just the way it is, you know, and that that I like to understand. Everybody wants to know why everybody wants me in the know. And that's great when you can provide it and you should try to provide it. But sometimes it's just the way it is, because here's the thing, man, if you worked at Chick-fil-A and they were like, hey, I hate to tell you, but we're, we're getting away from waffle fries and we're going to shoestring fries now. Somebody's going to want to know why. And that manager doesn't know because somebody in a corporate office, 17,000 miles away, figured out they could save a mm-hmm. million five a year if they did it that way. Right. So guess what? That's what's going to happen. Um, the, the flip side of this to understand, man, and again, I'm no expert. Um, I've, I've been fortunate to be kind of. Brought into some of the stuff if I've, if I've worked as a move up battalion chief Over the past couple of years And have been able to sit in on some of these meetings Is that sometimes the why doesn't come down Because there is no way to communicate it Without the boss talking his or her boss And, and that's People don't understand and, and when we kid about Oh it's lonely at the top right? But but think about it If, if you're supposed to get a new engine next year and, and everybody's been specking it And all of a sudden the budget gets cut And it's not happening so you go up the chain man like what the guys are raising hell what am i supposed to tell them it's like hey just tell them there's no money what you can't tell them is that you know which they don't know and you probably won't know is that you know the mayor called the fire chief and said hey sorry the cops needed new cop cars and they make money so you're shit out of luck find another funding source you're not getting it how do you communicate right. that down the chain in a respectful manner it doesn't put the mayor, and that's that's the side you'll never see and and yeah. again man I, i'm not taking up for people that that are not doing their job on the other side but I think people need to have an expectation of, of what can come down versus what can go up. And they also, what, what goes a long way is trying to educate people just the way I did, right? I'm using a fake scenario like, hey, do you know what the fire chief does? Well, yeah, that runs the fire department. Yeah, but do you know what he does? Yeah. Well, no. Well, why don't you think about it this way? And consequently, it's no different than going into the battalion chief and saying, hey, do you understand these guys ran seven calls after midnight for the past five shifts? And that's why they're not training in the morning because they know what's coming at night. Well, no, I didn't know that. OK, well, here, I encourage you to pull the run data once in a while and know what the fuck we're doing. You know, it's, It is what it is. And so it, it kind of goes both ways, man. Um, but but yeah, I you know, t- to your original point, too, I, I think this is a scenario where at the company blue collar level, we tend to overcomplicate things, too. And yeah. we all want to know and we want to be part of the solution. But at the same time, does it really impact your call for service? Does it really impact your ability to stretch a cross-layer, throw a ladder?
0: No Priorities. You,
1: you're human. You're curious by nature. But again, don't overcomplicate your job by worrying so much about everybody else's job. You forget how to do yours.
0: Yeah. Well said. So give me your top, as a company officer, on a typical shift, what are your top three priorities?
1: All right. So my top three priorities, a company officer. <laughs> hey, I'm doing really poor at them lately because I've had so much crap going on. Um, uh, but no, uh, uh, my first priority is, is my members, like what's going on with them for the day? What do they need? I, you know, that starts in the morning. Like, do they look off? Are they talking? Are they out of character? Are they on time? Are they dressed? Are they, you know, what do they look like at roll call? I don't know, but, but that's my main priority for the shift. What do my people need? Do they need a rest today? Do they need to train extra day? They perform well last shift. Do they perform well on the last call? You know, what, what do we need to do? So that's, that's always priority number one for me. Um, priority number two is going to seem crazy to a lot of people because serving leadership and all that. Um, what does my boss need for me today? What's on the agenda? He's got a boss. My, my second mission after my people is to make my boss's job as easy as possible. Me and uh, the other cat in my station, we're great about that. We try to forecast, like, hey, can we QC reports today? Can we make sure this is done? We make sure that is done. How can we help our battalion chief worry about what his boss wants him to do today? Well, we could take care of him. We can ask him what needs you have. What's on the plan today? Do you care if we do this, that, that, whatever. Um, And then thirdly is training, you know, Um, and training for me has changed over the years because my environment has changed over the years. And I think that a lot of people get some really lofty expectations because people put things on the internet and basically say, Hey, if you can. So, um, you know, I, I don't believe in that. Sometimes training is as simple as we ran a med call and we sit on the bumper and talk about what's on the block and a call we've been on before. Sometimes training is in, in depth. Is we're going to get fully geared out and do a first do drill. Um, some it's usually somewhere in between. Um, I've I've had a new guy for like the past decade, so usually my training revolves around whatever's in their probation book and uh in getting accomplished, but. But yeah. So my members, uh, my, the needs of my boss, and then the, the training of, of the company, and and you know I think all those you know encompass mm-hmm. the citizens, which is our main priority every shift.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. That's it's a good it's uh, a good list. So just one one thing. Give me one lesson that you wish you would have learned early on in your career. Something that you you know now or or is especially in in the role of leadership. When it comes to leadership, what's one thing or one lesson that you wish that someone had taught you or that you would have soaked in, if you will, and taken in, uh, you know, a decade ago? Honestly, it'd be that
1: not everybody loves the job the way you love the job. Sure. But that doesn't mean they're bad at the job or for the department. So that's, yeah, that's a tough one to swallow, man. And, yeah. Oh, that's a lot, of, yeah. a lot of heartache lost over that over the years uh, for for no reason, right?
0: Yeah, I, I I I feel that sometimes our own expectations for ourselves uh, bleed over to other people, and it usually causes a lot of frustration when we expect people to care like we care or think the way we think. And yeah, yeah. that's unfortunately, you're I the think. one that's disappointed. Yeah, well, right, you're the one losing sleep and, and frustrated. And they're <laughs> they're because you're driving them nuts with it
1: they're laughing
0: at you. Like, look yeah. how
1: stressed out he is. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, what's funny, man. is <laughs> like talking to guys. Like, I feel like that lesson, no matter how many times you hear it, guys have to experience yeah. it for themselves. Like firsthand. It's, it's one of those lessons that, especially as you move up in seniority and time and, you know, positions and stuff like that. It's so easy to, to forget that, you know, not everybody views things through the same lens as you. And
1: here's, uh, man this one this will this one will trip you out i'm kind of kind of starting to learn it now it's like i, I still love the fire service like day one but it looks different because my role has changed right so there's some yeah. kid right now looking at me of all people right saying man i wish cap loved the job i the way i loved it <laughs> but that's it's a perspective thing right yeah. so it's 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 crazy to think that but
0: it's coming. Yeah. No, it's very, very true. <laughs> so kind of rapid fire and kind of wrapping up here, man. I want to hit uh, you with a few cultural questions because I know, uh, obviously, uh, the unlock your culture things, you know, something you've been a part of and uh, yeah. culture, something obviously you're you're pretty passionate about. You teach some classes on and quite a few discussion, blog discussions and whatnot on the topic, but uh, kind of rapid fire. So do you think the American Fire Service is heading in the right direction as an industry, as a whole, do you feel like things are getting better staying the same or maybe digressing from where we should be?
1: I'm going to go with maybe. So I I, I think, I think we see the direction Um, again. I I think we're way too overcast and under resourced. Um, And, and out of all the things I'll say tonight, that'll sound probably really weird to some people is I, I think that we, our future depends on our ability to figure out what the hell to do with EMS Be, because I, I'm not, I'm not a opponent of EMS. Don't get me wrong. Not, not at all. But if we treated the quality versus quantity of EMS call volume, the same way we treated the quality versus quantity of fire call volume, we would have a much different opinion of it. And unfortunately EMS is like broken and nobody cares. And, and, Obviously, that overflow comes to us, whether you're running first responder or whether you're running you know, paramedic ambulances. And, and that is going to cripple any agency, whether it's ambulance only or Firebase EMS or something in between, just because of the sheer volume of calls and, and what it's doing to our resources. And so uh, I do think we're we're starting. I think we're having conversations now that the fire service wouldn't have had decades ago when I came in. Uh, but we have we've really got to figure out what's an emergency when it comes to medical calls and, and what is not and have some kind of a plan to take that stress off so we can be good at all these things we say we're going to do.
0: Zing, Yeah that's dude that is uh you know it, it is it's the elephant in the room right you know it's funny because when I first got on the job man like everybody wanted to go to paramedic school everybody's you know pushing and you know you got to be a medic and 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 I did it. You know, I'm a medic. I've been a medic for a long time, and I, I enjoy it. Like, uh, there's days where I, I obviously uh, ups and downs. Um, I always tell people I like being a paramedic and I love being a fireman, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. My, my heart is still fire, um, but I, I don't mind taking care of people that are sick and no. hurting. I don't. I, I enjoy that. Now, that being said, the reality of it is we run a lot of low acuity. Frankly, just stuff that taxes the system that's not emergent. Uh, but we have no way of saying no in America. We we pretty much just take more and more and more on, and and it it does tend to stretch resources thin sometimes and wear on people. And uh, you know, it's funny because a lot of the guys that were big proponents for ALS and paramedic services, uh, you know, when I first came on, or. Uh, about face now and like oh no we need to get rid of ems and stop being paramedics and i don't think that's the answer i think you we know, have to not. have a realistic conversation as a service though on how we're addressing our our ems service and and not you know it's become kind of this catch-all where people don't go to doctors anymore they just go to the emergency room they they treat the ambulance like you know it basically a taxi to go see the doc at the er and and that's, I think, part of it's an, a public education thing, a, you know, an expectation thing that we've kind of opened the window where we're just like, call us for whatever. You know, you know we, we're not going to say no because of liability, you know, because that one chance that they may be having something major going on. But what's happened is we've got a lot of people with burnout, a lot of people. And this yeah. is real talk. You know, a lot of people that cannot wait to get off an ambulance, mm-hmm. that don't want to ride on the ambulance, that call off sick because they don't want to work another day on the ambulance. And, oh. and that's... That's a real problem, I think, that, you know, you hit it on the head, man. It's it's a major cultural thing that we have to address as as a, as a service on how that's going to look going forward if we're going to, I think, uh, kind of fix those wounds, so to speak, and and fix those problems and, and make for a better service. Uh, you know, some will say that the fire department shouldn't be doing EMS. Some will say that, you know, it's it's a huge service to the community. We absolutely should be doing it. I think the answer is, you know, we really – can you do both? Can you have guys that want to be firemen that are firemen and guys that that do paramedicine that are paramedics? I think so. Maybe not in smaller, you know, systems. Maybe it's harder. I, you know, obviously it's it's a lot easier if you have a big system to be like, oh, you're EMS, you're fire. But then again, you know, where I'm at, it's all integrated. Everybody's medics. So it's one of those things where everybody kind of does their their turn. I, you know, there's rotations and things like that. But, uh, you know, does that help? I think so. I think it's a lot better than just like. You know, you're always on the box every day, 24 seven for 15 years. Uh, I think having rotation on the fire companies and on the ambulances may be, you know, at least on the interim, a, a better solution, uh, having some sort of rotation. Um, but again, it's not, I think it's a band aid. I don't think it's addressing the overall problem, which is unreal call volumes that just keep climbing and climbing and climbing because the demands for service, just they're not slowing down and the resources pool is not getting bigger. It's the same or less. And we're doing more and more and more runs with less and less people. And that's, I think, like you said, dude, that's a big issue culturally that we got to address real quick. (laughs) What are some things that you look at in the American fire service that make you smile, things that make you go, man, you know, it's good to see a shift in this direction or, or, you know, um, maybe some things that have come out in the last five to ten years that are that you really feel like is positive progress for the fire service and what are some things you look at and you kind of cringe a little bit and be like man we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot here maybe culturally we're we're going the wrong direction um and and just you know in your in your world where you're at like what are some things you're seeing that you know that that kind of make you go thumbs up thumbs down
1: yeah uh positives um i think the fact that we're we're looking at health and wellness of our employees under a microscope like never before. Um, and, you know, some of it was broken first, whatever. Um, but the fact that we've, you know, stopped ignoring things until we couldn't ignore them anymore. I think we're trying to be a little proactive when it comes to our people. I think that's a, a big step forward. Um, I, I I love the science aspect and how we're actually starting to listen to people who are much smarter and much more educated than us about fire dynamics and you know things like heat flux and all these nerdy terms that i learned in college that um but but not only are we listening to them we're making adjustments we have people now in positions that can translate what the floor says to a scientist mm-hmm. and we're in fire gear and we're learning uh, i think that's amazing um hose and nozzle development to me the the fact that we just aren't cool with low budget hose anymore and we actually understand it has outcome. I think, I think that's amazing. Um, You know, and honestly I I think there's a training resurgence in the fire service, which is great. I I think we went through a weird period um, probably when I first got in where we thought the fire Academy, the state level fire Academy or the city level fire Academy was going to solve everything for us. And I think we're realizing now that there's a, there's a place for regional training and, you know, the conferences and the the value of networking and getting outside our bubble and, and kind of balancing that with doing what works for us. So I, I think those are all good things that we're on a, on a track on. I'm sure there's many more, but off the top of my head, that's, that's just what they come, what comes to me. Uh, negative things. Um, you know, I, I don't know what we got to do to freaking recruit people anymore. <laughs> I almost think we've gone too far the other way. I think we've tried to make the job too appealing to people. I think we've tried to make it too easy. And you know, just my experiences with leadership, I think people actually deep down they they may not acknowledge it, they may not thank you, but they crave leadership. And and so um, bending over backwards and and advertising all the the things you get without the things you have to earn, um, I think that's that's negative for us. I, I'm not a fan of the the freaking RV style you know, Trenjin, Quiller, tow truck, crane, ambulance, cop car, monstrosities we're putting out with a, you know, seven block turning radius. I'm not down with it. I don't care what anybody says. I, I get staffing. I get budgets. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just not down with it. You'll never convince me. You you won't do it. I'm not saying I won't buy one one day as a fire chief. Hopefully I'm not, I'm not saying I won't ride one. If they give it to me, I just, man i can't stand it uh I, we don't have enough hours a day for me to go into that but uh yeah not a fan of that um and then i, I think just this is kind of a positive and a negative to to wrap these up uh, i really think community risk reduction is a great thing um i just wish we would stay in our lane with it i don't know how we became the catch all for everything i wish community risk reduction would be, become some kind of like a I don't want to say human resources function, but some kind of a community outreach function at the the bigger government level. And we would fit in where we fit in with fire prevention type stuff. And, you know, the calls we run versus somehow being spearheaded. Like we have time for that. I I don't mind being part of the system at, at all. I think it's very positive. I think we serve a critical role in actually referring people to community risk reduction because we do make such contact with people who need the help. But Um, how we somehow became, you know, like I said, the overflow for it, I I don't really understand.
0: Yeah, well said, man. Um, Real quick, what is, you know, there's a lot of polarizing topics in the fire surface nowadays. And and obviously, you know, we, we joke about the nozzles and the holes, and we talk about tactics and strategies. But really, there are some pretty polarizing opinions nowadays and i don't know if it's because we got you know the the access to social media and the constant flow of information uh but dude it just seems like man in the last 10 years i feel like there's such a you know i'm in this camp or that camp and you know this guy or that guy or this opinion or that opinion and like it's almost like it's very like very much a microcosm of our country where we have this very polarized opinions on everything now it's like, but it's, it's trans, you know, it's, it's not just society. It's, it's in our firehouses. We go to work and man, people are just like live and die by like, you know, if you don't have a small nozzle, you're, you're a shitty fireman. Or if you're but, wearing but they, a, a composite helmet, you're, you're, a, you know, or rubber boots, you are, you're a dumb, you know, schmuck or whatever, you know, or if you don't go to this, you know, training, or you're not with this group, then you're, you're somehow a lesser fireman. I don't know what dude, I don't know what is going on in the fire service in the last ten uh, years. But but in your opinion, and this is a very broad topic, obviously we don't have time to talk about it all. But why do you think in the last you know five or ten years there's been such a polarization of our firehouses, of the fire service? And and do you think it is it really just a, a kind of a, a result of society, how we are as a society, or do you think there's a bigger root cause there, i.e. social media trying to manage through policy, whatever?
1: Yeah, man, it's it's freaking exhausting. So, so here's what I know about polarization, um, and this is what I know from my time. I feel that it is three thousand percent driven by social media, which is ironic coming from somebody who is talking today because of social media. Um, but no, it, it's it's the uh, it's the access to information, kind of what we talked about earlier. It's the ability to see a tactic without the strategy. It's ability to see one side without the research, without the vetting process, it's the ability to type faster than your mind can process. I used to be that way. I remember when I first got on social media, I couldn't wait to find somebody spewing some kind of information that I wanted to, you know, go against. And honestly, man, it's, we have incentivized through YouTube and, um, these influencers, the, the power of the 15 minutes. I mean, there's people I've got on the fire service circuit because of their 15 minutes and some of them have done good things with it. And some of them, they go by the wayside. Um, but what I do know about the polarization is that um, you will not find nearly as much polarization within the walls of your firehouse as as you will in the infinite walls of social media and the interwebs. And that's sure. funny you know, because a lot of the people telling you they live and die by the seven eights don't have one on their truck. Uh, the the people that are telling you they're truckies through and through ride an engine and then have never done a search. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, part of my success, if you will, has just been that I've been very blunt and honest about my experience and lack of experience in many cases. And um, but yeah, man, I, I can't stand it, but it's a front, a lot of people, it's a front, it's a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of education and an overdose of the ability to run your mouth. Um, and so somebody that listens to this will probably say, Hey, I just did that for two hours and that's fine. Um, but I think if you do some research, there's a lot of factual
0: things, but behind, behind what we have talked about. And, oh, sure. And, well, ego yeah. comes into play too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. People want to, you know, people want to be right. People you know, care more about being right than they, you yeah. know, sometimes I think it's, it, you know, we get caught so caught up in being right that we forget about what's right. You know, we want to be, yep. it's all about who's right, not what's right. And yep. yeah, no, well, well said, man. Um, so a couple tidbits as we close here Um, two things one being uh, what is one thing that you feel like at a company level that we can do to create a positive culture in our firehouse and then you know who do you think has the biggest influence on our culture in the firehouse i i think just taking care of people
1: is is the and, and you can you can use that as a broad stroke or you can you know, scribble some details with it, but just take care of people and, and understand that taking care of people doesn't mean telling them what they want to hear all the time. Taking care of people is sometimes having hard conversations behind a closed door. It's corrective action. It's unwanted criticism and critiques that need to happen to improve. It's going the extra mile. It's having emotional intelligence. It's doing things that you don't want to do sometimes that benefit somebody else. And honestly, the more I learn, the more I realize that sometimes it's just shutting your freaking mouth and letting somebody else talk and not correcting them and just letting them speak their piece. And, and that's how you build trust. And that's how you build camaraderie and brotherhood is, you know, if we're going to be a family, be a family. And families are dysfunctional at times, but they're always there for each other. And, and the rest of it spawns from that. If you want people to buy into training, they want to buy into operations. It starts with giving them a seat at the table and not demeaning them and, and running them off. Um, you know who had the biggest influence on culture? I mean, I, I think it. I think everybody, man. That's I. This goes in that polarization thing. I, I. I think we need to stop worrying about who's responsible for it and just do our role in it. Um, but but I think if you had to pick one, and, and this is just my view, um, I, I would say it's the brass, and for this reason and this reason only. Um, yeah. I, we've all heard the water can boil from the bottom thing. It's a hundred percent true. Um, but if you put the lid on, it boils over and I've said that for years. And, and I think that be, because great ideas can come up from the bottom and they can come down from the top too, but it ideas get squashed very easily, even unintentionally at the top. And so I think, unfortunately, what we see in a lot of places is that we see chief level officers that again, sometimes they don't realize it. sometimes they do, uh, out of ego, but they will, they will prevent a, a culture from changing or forming. Um, but but, you know, I, you know, I also know a lot of chiefs that, you know, point out that, you know, people at the bottom of the food chain don't take advantage to change their culture, too. They don't do the accountability thing. They don't take care of their own house. They just want to point the finger up and everybody wants to be a part of the process until they are. And then also they don't want to do the work. So that's why I say it's really everybody. And I think if you if you do your part, you do your job, you you handle your role. I think you'll have much better results uh, with people who get sometimes unjustly accused of messing up the culture in your fire department.
0: Yeah. Well, well said, man. Damn. Um, <laughs> whose job is it to build culture? Yours. <laughs> whoever you are, It is <laughs> whoever. <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody wants to point fingers at the company officer, the chief or whatever. I mean, yep. I, I do tend to agree that you know, water certainly can boil from the bottom up and, and certainly can see some changes, but the reality of it is, uh, you know, we cannot, as, as line guys, we have to remember that we have to be able to communicate and get the guys at the top that are actually writing the checks and making the decisions to support what we're saying. And if we can't communicate that and we can't get those guys to buy in, then we got problems, right? We got major, major problems uh, in our firehouse. And we're going to have poor culture because it doesn't matter how revved up you are at the company level, even if all the guys are behind it and you have chiefs that just are disconnected or feel isolated or feel at odds with the membership, you know, you're going to have an uphill battle and vice versa. You could have chiefs that want to do great things, but the guys aren't buying into it and they just just don't give a shit. You know, you have to have both. And so like, I think you hit it on the head though. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's everybody's job. Everybody's got to do their within their sphere of influence. And I think, you know, we talk about lessons that learn in the hard way. That's probably one of the biggest lessons I had to learn the hard way was worry about what's in your sphere of influence. Don't worry about the stuff you have no control over. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to pull my hair out in frustration because, you know, so, you know, this chief or that chief or this officer, that officer disagrees. And they're just, you know, at odds and we're in whatever piston match. And I'm like, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like I have no control. I can't make them see my point of view. (laughs) So why the hell am I going to sit here and beat my head against the wall and be frustrated when really my sphere of influence is in my company? It's in my guys. It's in my firehouse. It's it's that little group of people that I you know that I've been fortunate enough to work with. Invest in. I guess what I'm saying is you know learning to invest where you're going to get the greatest return. Yep. And you know that dude. That's. That's, in That's the nature
1: nutshell, right? Man. Yeah, I, I still haven't learned that lesson because human nature is you, you want the ones that agree with you, you take for granted. And it's the ones that don't that you want to bring to the other side. That's your measure of success. And like you said, it's a hundred percent bullshit, it's ego driven, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it's I don't know. I sometimes I think I master it and then I'm presented with a new challenge that reminds me I have
0: <laughs> Yeah, life life has a way of uh Throwing those those curveballs at you and those challenges sometimes to remind you that you're not uh, you haven't got it all figured out yet. But dude, you good. know it's been a it's been a good conversation, man. Um, We've covered a lot of ground, obviously, in, a, in the last oh, yeah. couple hours. Um, I've enjoyed the hell out of it. I think I think guys listening will hopefully get some stuff out of it. I, I think it you know really comes down to you know be good at what you do, love love the job, you know, invest in areas that you are going to be able to to influence and in, and in, in, you know invest in your crew, invest in your people um remember we're all in this together we don't have to you know it's not this hard line in the sand where we have to pick sides every time we go to work and no. you know I think if we can remember that um you know and, and and be better for it by taking care of each other and remembering you know with all the stuff that we do and all the hats that we wear um when the bell rings that's really what matters right make sure we take care of our citizens and make sure our people get to you know have the tools and the resources they need to do their job, do it well, and hopefully go home at the end of the day. That's that's the goal. Um you know all the other stuff is fluff. All the other stuff that yeah. we do is 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 good. You know, those those projects, those committees, those you know, things that we do in the community are fantastic. But we can't forget that at the end of the day we're in the people business and, and it starts with our people, it starts with our citizens, and it starts with our you know really the fire service, if we want to get back to that culture of family-driven culture where we you know have that that bond at the company level and at at the department level then i think it really comes down to is you know taking the time like you said to you know say hey is this really worth fighting over how about we we find some middle ground here how about we sit down and actually just look at you know is it really worth having a knockdown, drag out argument over something that's really not going to change the outcome of our mission one bit you know um, we may think it may. <laughs> you know, oh the seven if we don't get this on the truck, then we're not gonna put out fires. That's bullshit. We've all of us have put out fires with other nozzles. It's it's not that we can't do it. Do we have preferences? Yes. Is it worth getting in a in a shouting match with other company officers and team members over? Probably not. So I don't know, man. Like I said, it's been fun. Um get you know, I really think that uh like I said, dude, you've you've really summed it up pretty well tonight, uh, on, on just the suburban engine ops and and leadership and culture. And, uh, hopefully guys got a lot out of it. And uh, if you got anything, any parting words of wisdom, by all means, uh, (laughs) share it with us, man.
1: No, man, I, I I thank you for having me. I I guess the, the biggest thing I can say to to close it out is, uh, I'll, I'll echo my friend John Dixon up in New Jersey, uh, you know, nobody drafted you into this profession, you know, that at some point you you put up your hand and asked to be a part of this. So I, I would say that, you know, all the things we talked about tonight are if you're worried about those things, you care. And that's, that's a really good thing. And, you know, the things take time much more. They, they devolve a lot faster than they evolve. And so, you know, just, you know, put the community first and, and put your people first and, and you can't really go wrong. And, you know, you may not love the job every single day that you show up to the firehouse, but you can, you still love the job. So, um, you know, that's, again, I, I thank you for having me. It's been fun. Um, but I thank anybody who stuck with us for two hours and 20 minutes, man, I, we should have warned people of me and Nick get talking. I'm surprised there's not a part like five by now, but, but no, man, it, it, it's been fun. Um, I, I really, I really enjoy doing this kind of thing. And And again, if, if you got one or two tidbits out of this, it's, it's totally worth our time. And, and I think that's great. And, you know, just play it and pass it forward.
0: Yeah. Well said, man. Well, Mark, my brother, thanks again for coming on the show tonight. Thanks for uh, sharing your thoughts and, and, you know, knowledge and experience on stuff. And uh, like I said, man, we'll have to do it again sometime, but with uh, that, we'll close it down and have a good night, man. All right. You too, bro.
1: You too, bro.